0: A MotoGP race that followed the form book as Ducati delivered in Austria just welcome to Bike Live let's go yes you are listening to episode 26 of Bike Live here on Modspot 101 as we look back on the MotoGP race of the year in Austria at the Red Bull Ring Andre De and Mark Marquez going to war and Dovi Getting the victory just uh, in a final lap shootout over Marc Marquez, we will look at all of the big stories from the Red Bull Ring, including whether that venue itself is fit for MotoGP purpose. There are very, very strong views on both sides of the argument. Uh, we'll also look at how uh, movie star Yamaha's championship hopes appear to have taken a nosedive with a problem with their machine, which may well derail their entire season unless they get a cure and fix and quick uh, we'll also look at the Moto2 Championship which took a swing towards Franco Morbidelli last weekend despite Thomas Luti's best attempts and we'll look at Moto3 as Joan Mir dominated once again to take his 7th win from 11 and one of the great Grand Prix debuts from a Spaniard by the name of Jean Macia. you may not know that name yet you certainly will by the end of this podcast We'll also look at all the big news stories as the MotoGP silly season takes another turn and look ahead to this weekend as the World Superbikes return after its endless summer break at the Lausitz Ring in Germany. BSB also heads to Cadwell as showdown spots look set to be decided. Uh, Joining me then for episode 26, it's Andre Harrison once again. Welcome, Dre.
1: Thank you very much. Give me a minute. I'm just gonna sit down and give my mini me version in the paddock a pep talk. Okay, a Little Dry, um, it's been a controversial weekend, but a lot of fun stuff to talk about in a MotoGP this weekend. As, as you see on my clipboard, we had have to set this written down. Let's do this. Um, so sorry about that. I have to do my best Johan Zarko impression <laughs> yes. to, to go into the weekend. But uh, yeah, ready
0: to, <laughs> ready to go. Ready to go. Ready to go. It's it's a big week, uh, it has to be said, here at Motorsport 1, or a big fortnight, really. Um, episode 99 um, went online um, just before we hit the record button to record this podcast, Um, A couple of days ago, as you listen to this, um, head to soundcloud.com forward slash motorsport101 or to our website motorsport101.net to hear episode 99. Um, The next couple of shows that you'll hear on Motorsport 101 um, from that side of the uh, the divide, if you like, Dre, are a couple of big shows. Uh, Episode 101, which we'll come to in a minute, but first, episode 100. And for those that didn't listen to episode 99 or haven't listened to it yet, um, just explain to the listeners the plans for the Centennial Cup. I'm
1: on a spot 101. yeah I, I did kind of tease it on last week's bike live but yes the centennial cup will be the grand um, special occasion for episode 100 and uh yeah for those guys that, that liked our international fantasy draft of 2016 where i'm still kind of bitter that matt carnero beat me um we are coming back for that second time round. it's going to be a little bit more complicated um we're going to be actually picking teams and actually watching them race. If anyone's been like me that was like a week late in getting his fantasy Premier League team prepared, think <laughs> something along those lines. But a combination of that and the draft format that we had last year. But this time we're doing an auction draft, which, I trust me on this, if you know how an auction, drive, uh, auction draft works – you know it's almost guaranteed for great radio. We pick a driver and then it goes on the open auction like something out of Monopoly. We're, we're bound to probably hate each other by the end of the episode, but it, sh- it should be great drama. And um, yeah, so me, Ryan King, Matt Carnero from MSTF1, RJ O'Connell is back for episode 100, which is very exciting indeed, and Zoe Hamilton representing Scotland. So the five of us will all be sitting down for that to celebrate 100 episodes of motorsport 101 and the centennial cup will be the headline main event of that episode um so yeah look you look forward to that next week on motorsport 101 and obviously keep an eye on our social media especially our twitter page motorsport at motorsport underscore 101 for all of the rules and details regarding that coming soon
0: yes very very soon indeed so many questions to be answered heading into the centennial cup will matt carnero win his second consecutive draft as it were Will will Dre Dre exact his revenge? Will Ryan King engage in a bidding war over French drivers? All of those questions (laughs) to be answered uh, next week. Um, Along with all of that, inter-spliced into next week's show will also be some of the uh, classic Motorsport 101 moments from the first 99 episodes, um, including um, Dre's best bits, in inverted commas, um, to close out the show. Dre has already heard them. Um, Yeah. B- best is a, is, a, is a subjective term here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He, he enjoyed the soundtrack, um, to be required to the back of it. Not so much what was uh, being played over the top of it, but you'll be able to hear all of that um, as part of episode 100, the Centennial Cup, coming next week. Episode 101, which follows the week after, is likely, Dre, to be a live Google Hangout edition. Am I right?
1: Yes, we did it for episode 50. We will most likely do it again for episode 101 um again lineup will be confirmed at a little bit nearer the time but yeah we're probably going to go live for the 101st episode of motorsport 101 because i could be not it's its a bloody milestone that it might even be more important than 100 knowing us yeah but um yeah that show will most likely be live on youtube as it happens and obviously as soon as the the audio gets ironed out we'll most likely put it up immediately on soundcloud as well so hey you probably get 101 a little bit early as well so hey who doesn't love that um <laughs> exactly. uh, but uh, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, episode 101 of Motorsport One will most likely be live as well the week after, probably early in that week as well. So I uh, yeah, look forward to that one. We're breaking out all the special stuff to celebrate this mal- this milestone occasion. And uh, yeah, just don't listen to the end of episode 100. You don't want, you, you don't want to hear my mistakes. I'm normally a, a flawless radioist where nothing ever goes wrong, ever. Not in a million years.
0: No, no, we totally didn't find five minutes worth of. Uh of uh of Drake. shut your mouth yeah i won't I, w- I won't go into it detail little bit you'll just l- listen for yourselves it's um it's well worth a listen it's the amount a bloody time and effort i put into it anyway um but anyway let's talk bikes for the next two hours um episode 26 of bike live reviewing the austrian grand prix last weekend and we have to start unfortunately dre not as much on a negative but on um a bit of a controversial topic because the austrian grand prix that we did get was absolutely thrilling and we'll talk about it in a second yes. but It has to be said, had the weather not played ball, a number of riders might well not have taken part in this Austrian Grand Prix at all.
1: Yeah, um, it, the 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 interviews and the media conversations after Friday's running, which was you know essentially a complete washout, and you know riders in all three classes tried, and there you know, was there was got at least a dozen major incidents out there during that Friday running. They heavily rained out free practice one and two, and um, it did dry out a little bit towards the end of FP two. So we did have a provisional you know qualifying list and whatnot, but. Um yeah, uh, we, we saw some nasty ones out there like Danny Kent, who injured himself and put himself out of the weekend after he was collected by Alex Marquez in Moto2. It was one of the examples of many, many turn one accidents. Now, to quickly explain, I mean, Austria is barely acceptable as a safe track in the dry. Um, there are three major braking zones where you're hitting 190 miles an hour on entry, and two of them have no gravel. So if you, if you fall
0: in that wall directly alongside it,
1: yeah, and, you know, two very close walls at turns one and two in terms of braking zones. So if you're coming off the bike at turn one and a braking zone uphill, uphill at 190, um, you're going to be hitting that wall very, very fast indeed. And as Alicia Spagaro pointed out on Twitter on Friday, the last time we had a major incident with that sort of incident, we lost Louis Salon. And yeah, um, in the wet the red bull ring is kind of an antiquated circuit in the sense of it doesn't really have a drainage system. So when it rains, sadly, the way the track undulates with all the, you know, variable changes in height means it often pushes a lot of the rainwater back onto the circuit, which obviously when you're going uphill towards turn one is extremely dangerous. Um, And again, when you mention that with what I mentioned about walls and lack of gravel, you put all that together, you have a circuit that's more acceptable for four wheels than two. And even then, it's barely acceptable in the wet. It's flat out dangerous. And it is a reason why pretty much a quarter of the MotoGP field, um, the a Petrucci, Mionis Volga, Alicia Spagaro, Laurie Spaz, Cal Crutchlow, and maybe even Mark Marquez, the championship leader, either all said they were not going to run if the race was wet or... We'll see, or in the case of Marquez would we'll seriously consider not not racing at all in the wet if it got too much, which again when a quarter of the MotoGP paddock is out here saying that this is not an acceptable risk to go racing in kind of says it all really about your circuit.
0: And from the sports point of view, looking at Dorna, looking at the the FIM, looking at the riders themselves it has to be said, looking at the circuit itself, uh, this is inexcusable, isn't it? I mean, Casey Stoner said himself when he tested there 12 months ago that mm. he had serious concerns, especially in the wet. So it's not like this is a problem that has just crept upon us. This is a problem that we all knew about from the first moment GP came here 12 yeah. months ago, and nothing has been changed.
1: No. And, again, you're absolutely right. Casey Stoner, like I've got the full quote in front of me, Casey Stead pretty much straight up. Imagine what will happen if it rains. A rider who crashes will not slow down just the opposite and yeah that was during his first testing session there for Ducati when he became an ambassador two years ago um that was 2015 he said he said he said those comments and nothing has changed since then um and as we saw like Casey's Casey's theory was proven correct um during, during free practice one on the Friday and yeah you're absolutely right like they have done nothing to mention so i, I do specifically remember james Toesland for bt sport talking about this i think it was last season where he said that you know he's had a couple of crashes here from like 20 years ago when he when his biking career first started and he remembers that this track is pretty much unchanged since then and it's not done anything about those safety concerns and he said it was kind of antiquated for a bike circuit and well, surprise, surprise! He, again, he was kind of proven right as the weekend's running continued.
0: Yeah, and I, and I don't want to pick on these two riders in particular because um, they're not not exactly um, enemies in this by by no means, but they were they just happened to be the two riders that were asked about this on Thursday of the Grand Prix weekend. Valentino Rossi and Danny Pedrosa um, were both asked on Thursday of the Austrian Grand Prix weekend about the safety of the place. Um, and whether anything had been discussed in the safety commission from last year to this year, and I still remember the the, comment, the comments. I don't remember the exact quotes, but Bounty and Racing Jones are both essentially were asked if there had been any changes, and they both said we don't know if there have been any changes um, from last year. And like I say, how man, do they not know? This is it. And I'm not picking on these two at all. They just happen to be the two that were asked. But if this is a sport that is taking safety of its circuits as seriously as it should be. How would its two of its leading and most experienced riders not know if the circuit's been changed?
1: That's a farce. I did not know that was a thing until you just told me that. That is a complete farce. You're telling me that how I if how do you not know if a track has had any major changes going into a race weekend?
0: Yeah, I mean they were both that... speaking in the I think the, the context of it was that they had not walked the track yet. Um, but well, surely that's if that's a, that was a, such a serious issue a year ago. Surely that's the first thing you're asking when you arrive at the circuit, or you're asking that weeks before you get there. You're asking that when the calendar's announced. Surely.
1: Yeah, I, I, I know this ties into it as well, but like when, whenever, whenever there's safety commission meetings in MotoGP, shout out to Bradley Smith, um, they don't even take the minutes in those meetings. Like, well, what's the point? If like, what is the point in having these meetings, sitting guys down and trying to, you know, drill out plans and conversations with these guys? If you're not even clocking minutes out of these meetings and using them to go back and, you know, using the evidence in front of you or having these conversations and then doing something about it. What is the point of having these safety meetings if one, you're not tracking the minutes and two, if there are any changes, you're not telling the riders like that's a complete joke. Like like there needs to be either some sort of riders union or at least better communication between the riders themselves and Dorner and, and the track organisers, because that should not be happening under any circumstance. That is asking for trouble. And again, we've got lucky this weekend to a degree that we did have these more intense conversations after Friday, but that, that could have easily been a complete disaster.
0: Yeah, it was. And yeah, MotoGP seems to have a bit of a history, unfortunately, a recent history of reacting to like you're waiting for a tragedy to occur and then reacting rather than trying to jump in before and prevent it right Um, right and and this i mean take Catalunya last year for instance i mean that was a corner i mean that accident that tragically took the life of louis salam could have happened in any of the previous 10 or so years um that the most gp have been racing around there um it just so happened that it took until 2016 for that accident to happen um and they they learned a very harsh lesson there um and louis Salom unfortunately paid the ultimate price for it but it shouldn't have t- it shouldn't have come to that um no that's happened. Really. And, and, and MotoGP gp surely needs to and the, the, the motor gp riders have requested um that the circuit is changed for next year um right. these barriers get moved but you know Thankfully, they've got there in time before someone got seriously hurt. But this should have been this should have been happened before last year's race, let alone this year's. Um, and it, it just it just smacks of a sport that still isn't quite taking the safety debate as seriously as it should um, in, in motorcycle but, racing. And, um, and we've been and, here before
1: as well. And we've we, been we've... here
0: before. And and to I mean, don't get me wrong. There are a number of riders and a number of fans who relish the danger element of the sport. Take Josh Brooks um, and his comments on <laughs> Saturday, um, who basically, I'll dig up the actual quote in a minute, but essentially was saying to Simon Patterson of MCN, well, if these riders are too scared to go out there and race, then let someone else who I, isn't I, have I, a go. I have,
1: I have the full quote He said, don't want to ride, stand aside, and let those who would sacrifice anything to be there have a go.
0: Yeah, which is, is completely missing the point, um, unfortunately. I mean... We'll come on to the other uh, tweet from Josh Brooks and the uh, emo- emoji that he used in a moment. Um, but this is the pinnacle. This is not the Isle of Man TT. This is not a national championship. This is supposed to be the pinnacle of motorcycle racing, and therefore it should be the pinnacle in all aspects. That includes safety. Exactly, and and you shouldn't you the- shouldn't have to play Russian roulette with your own life just to go out there and race. <laughs>
1: Let me just point this out right here and now, and if anybody wants to argue why, email me at dre at motorsport101.com, but these riders don't owe us a damn thing. They, they These guys are getting on 250 brake horsepower death traps and going around a pretty darn dangerous circuit at the best part of 200 miles an hour. I will never, ever, ever stand in the way or criticise anybody that has, in my opinion, the balls to step away rather than the balls to compete. Because we, as a motorsport community, we expect this almost suicide idle level of bravery when it comes to these riders. I mean, again, you mentioned the Isle of Man TT, and if I'm honest, a lot of their fans are quite culty when it comes to the Isle of Man TT because of how dangerous it is, you know, the the admiration of these riders that are going out there on a circuit that has killed 250-plus people in in its history. Mm, And uh, Don't
0: get me wrong. I mean, I have the ultimate admiration for the riders who go there and race as well at the Isle of Man TT, but every rider who goes to race at the Isle of Man TT knows exactly what they're getting into. And they know exactly. it's there and they know when they go there that an accident could kill them. Um, but that's not the case with Grand really. Prix motorcycle racing. Riders don't expect to go to a Grand Prix fearing that any kind of accident could kill them. They should expect a certain level of facility and a level of safety, surely.
1: Yeah, exactly, and and I'm going to borrow a friend, a quote from a friend of mine called Alice um, at Count von Crash on Twitter, who talked about it on the Friday and said a road racer is not any more qualified to talk about safety than a Grand Prix driver is, um, and they are both inherently dangerous. It's, it's, it's how I describe people that want to talk about the NFL and American football and safety, and I always tell them the same response: How safe do you want to make smoking a cigarette? And it's it's the same deal here. Like, I, yeah, you're absolutely yeah, you're absolutely right um, that you know you don't go to a Grand Prix expecting you know riders to die. You just don't. So, but yet, unfortunately, MotoGP and its support classes have had four fatalities this decade. And it, I, I like, I will get into more of Brooks's comments in a second. But given that British Superbikes was still in a state of mourning just six days prior when Martin lost his life. I find it amazing that anyone wants to talk about, you know, everyone, like people want to scoff at safety concerns when like one of the, do like, the biggest domestic superbike series in the world has just experienced a fatality in one of its support classes. I mean, that's the second time it's happened in BSB's ladder this year that sadly a rider has lost its life and we're out here scoffing at safety measures. Really? Are we doing this? Yeah, and, we don't and, have the luxury to have that conversation. Like, yeah, we just don't. And, and the,
0: way I, the way I see it, Grand Prix Monocycle Racing should be about who is the best, not who considers themselves to be the bravest um, in, in riding in conditions that aren't exactly safe enough for the sport and the level of sport, world championship, world-class competition that we're talking about here. Um, and Josh Brooks's other uh, tweet that drew a lot of attention, um, for better or for worse, was his tweet to Aleish Aspargaro, who... Uh, questioned brooks's mentality shall we say and his uh, his approach and he's basically he's questioning the riders who if they're not safe enough shouldn't bother and should let guys like him take part um he tweeted to lhspar Spargo an emoji of a dress um which essentially <laughs> without i mean i don't think this is going too far dre but putting words in josh Brooks's mouth to say that he was basically saying to lhspar grow stop being a girl i
1: think that's exactly what he was implying um let's not play dumb here um he's just brooks is a grown man in his 30s um he's not a naive teenager on twitter he is a he is an, i'm going to assume a very intelligent young man and yeah he was implying that he was a girl and inherently I mean, it's crass at best and it's sexist at worst. You can't be going out here like it's 2017. Can we please stop using the word "girl" as an insult for someone for being brave when there are female bike riders out there and good ones in their own right? Like, can we? Like, can, can we just not please? Like this? Like it's that kind of shit that puts women off motorsport and. I, I I don't like this hyper-masculinity bullshit that guys like Brooks wants to come out with here when guys like Alicia Spagaro have pointed out very, very valid safety points about the Red Bull ring as a circuit. As I said, we don't have the luxury about bike safety because, like I said, bike racing is inherently dangerous on every level from... From 300cc Supersport sport bikes to these 1000cc litre Superbikes that can go at 200 miles an hour everywhere. And I know a lot of fans were were in Brooks's corner mentioning Cadwell Park this weekend and the mountain and using pictures of Brooks going over it as a sign that his cojones are bigger than any going up a mountain and he's ridden the TT before. That doesn't matter. It shouldn't matter. It's not a matter of. Who's the braver man? It's a matter of pointing out things that, hey, like w- that may save a life down the road. Because for once, by the are being proactive rather than being a very serious case. Because we saw it with Catalonia last year mm. where we didn't talk about their track being inherently dangerous until they dies. And that's only then did everybody bash their heads together and figure out a way of trying to make the track better. And even then, two of its biggest riders were against it because, oh, no, they might not win the race. Shout out to you, Valentino. You know what I'm talking about. And that's that, like, those sorts of things frustrate the crap out of me because, like I said, like, Brooks, you just came out of a series where one, where, where one of the most prolific riders in the super stock class died. Six days prior, and you're coming out here questioning a safety change? Come on, man! Like, is is that necessary? Was like, was 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 basically calling Alicia coward necessary at all? Like, I get it. I get Brooks. You know, I get that Brooks has sacrificed a lot to get where he is in Australia, and I know a lot of guys in the Australian category of motorsport often rue the lack of opportunities that come their way. But don't take that frustration. I maybe doesn't want to die for our entertainment. Just throwing that out there. Yeah. And uh,
0: yeah, I, I, I cannot add anything to what Dre said. He said it way better than I could. The only other thing I would add um, is in reference to Josh Brooks's point, And this is as good an answer as anything I could find online um, to Josh Brooks's effective accusation of LH to Don't be a girl. That wet Moto3 free practice session that we had on Friday afternoon that took place in those wet conditions. Maria Herrera finished seventh fastest. Not bad. <laughs> Not bad Stop for a girl. Gone, right? Exactly. Um, so she was plenty brave enough in those wet conditions on Friday. Just saying. Um, right then, on to the racing and uh, what did happen on Sunday, mercifully, in dry conditions. Um, and as I said at the top, Dre, in dry conditions, we got, in the end, MotoGP's, arguably, its race of the season.
1: Which is quite the statement, given how great this season has been already. But um, yeah, this was. For me, an all-time classic. This was one of those one of those clashes, one of those duels in the second half of that race that is going to go down in history as one that's going to be repeat, retweeted on Video Pass for years to come. Um, that was an incredible race. Again, a race that basically was almost in two halves with Lorenzo doing what Lorenzo does best, which is such a brilliant starter. Um, tries to get the metronome going didn't have it this time round, but again we had four manufacturers in that leading or four teams in that leading group again and as Lorenzo faded in the second half of the race it brought Dovi and Marquez into play Prodrosa was only marginally off and then, well, as the Yamaha's faded, but Dovi versus Marquez. I mean, I don't think we've ever seen Dovi in a real dogfight for a win like that before. And he
0: certainly, delivered. Certainly not where he's won one, yeah. I mean, we've seen him mm-hmm. We've seen him a few times in Qatar have battles with Yamaha riders for victories mm. and, um, on the final up there and just come out on, on the losing side of it. Um, but this, I think, told us a lot. I mean, Andrei De Vecchoso has already this year answered a lot of questions about him that, um, you know, can he be a regular winner amongst GP? Yes he can, he's now won as many races as anybody in the class this year, um, he now has three which draws him level with Marquez and level with Vinales um, they've all won, each of them have won three Grand Prix this year and he's now proven that he can go toe to toe, punch for punch with the best rider in the world right about now, Marc Marquez and beat him
1: Yeah, absolutely And you, you, you hit the nail on the head better than I could on that one in a sense of yeah, like Dovi, this is this is the season that Dovi has pretty much answered every question we've ever asked of him in his MotoGP career. That you know, was he just a bit on the side? Was he just the best of the rest guy? Was he just a really good versatile rider? But you know, did, did anybody ever think that Dovi would be in a really strong position to potentially win the championship after 11 race season, where you know he is right up there going punch for punch with? some of the greatest riders this sport has ever seen. And you're absolutely right. Dovi was right there. Punch for counter punch with Mark Marquez. He was very strong all weekend. And we'll talk about Marquez in a minute, but that Honda was clearly better in the offseason than it was beforehand. And yeah, Dovi came out on top in a dogfight with probably the best one-on-one rider in that sort of situation In MotoGP. So, yeah, again, a a brilliant performance from Dovi and another one that will silence any doubt that we've had about how good he can be. Um, Just, yeah, brilliant stuff from Davizioso.
0: Brilliant stuff. And he was was lavished with praise by his team boss, Davide Tarotsi. Afterwards, speaking to MCN, uh, Davide Tarotsi said, Now we can call him Professor Dovi. Um, because the strategy he had during the race was fantastic when he was overtaken by mark it was on purpose everything dovi did was because he knew the race would be like this and we discussed the race before the start and dovi was clear what was going to happen and that's how it turned out dovi did exactly what he told us he would do um i mean he's he's a thinking man's rider if nothing else under so he's, he's such an intelligent guy um on the bike um but the way he thought his way through that race tactically and you could see the the different approaches of the two different riders through the race and where the two bikes were strong and where the two bikes were weak and de so pretty much knew going to that final lap as long as he could hold Marc Marquez off through those two fast lefts in the third sector of the lap he'd have enough to win the race.
1: Yeah, like, Dovi knew what was coming. He he knew what, how this was going to end. Um, we've always praised Dovi's intelligence. He's always been the sort of rider that, you know, he's extremely calculated. He knows what's going to happen around him. He knows where the bike is, and he knows where, if somebody is going to attack, you know where their bike is going to be. And, yeah, you're spot on. This is exactly what Dovi thought was going to happen. It did, and, yeah, as you said, amazing
0: to watch, wasn't it, where Davizioso would often pull out best part of half a second through that first half of the lap, and then Marquez... Being so good through left-handers would essentially take that time back in two corners.
1: It's incredible. He was just so, you, you saw the the difference between the Honda and the Ducati like play out almost on TV. Like, like you can see that again. Dovi is putting out three, four temps on the two fast home straights, and uh, and in sector three, Marquez is basically two temps a corner quicker through sector three. It is absolutely bonkers seeing the difference between them. One thing I did notice. Was that if, if if anything, if TV was a measure to go by, that Honda's acceleration has definitely improved in the, in the last three or four races, where like the the Gatti is not destroying it in a straight line anymore. Like Marquez can stay with Dovi to a degree. Yeah,
0: because going what, in, if, going in, looking at the calendar and looking at the the characteristics of that circuit, I don't think any of us gave Mar- Mar- Marquez any price of winning here.
1: Mm-hmm. Exactly, and going in, we thought this was going to be a, a, a Ducati cake walk like it was last year. And even Dovi admitted after Saturday that, no, these Hondas are right here. This is like we think we've got the edge, but it's 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 going to be close this year. And yeah, it turned out again to be absolutely right on raw pace. Yamaha and Honda were right there, but Yamaha obviously didn't have the tyres for the fight. And Marquez was right there, right at the very end. And again, gave Dovi a real, probably the toughest flight of his MotoGP career to win a Grand Prix.
0: <laughs> he did. And what we got in the end was a, a thrilling final lap, a thrilling final couple of corners where Matt Marquez was climbing all over DiMizioso, going to the penultimate corner, the, the penultimate right-hander turn nine, and then had a go at turn ten. Was he ever going to just sit in second place? Um, I guess will be the first question. But there's two sides, I suppose, to this, Dre. I mean, if Marquez, the move he tried, had that worked and he'd won the race, we'd probably be talking about that move in the same terms that we talk about Valentino Rossi's last corner move on Jorge Lorenzo in Barcelona back in 2009. It would have probably been in that same conversation as one of the great MotoGP moves. But at the same time... Mark Marquez, it didn't work. He outbraked himself and overshot the corner. And is he kind of grateful that Andre Di saw him coming and jumped out of the way of him?
1: Probably. Um, that was what you... I think that's what we described there as clenched buttocks going into that final corner. Um, and played hardball going into that final corner. They're, pro, they're both probably going down. and Danny Pedrosa wins the Grand Prix. Um Again, we credit Dovi as a thinking man's rider, and he probably realised. Wait, let me just let Marquez take this, yeah, and he's, then i He's okay. not making the corner. He's not. There's no way he make. He makes the exit of the corner properly. And again, Dovi, I'm glad Dovi realised that because if he, if he if he goes for the apex like he normally does on the racing line,
0: And like many other riders probably would have done in that scenario.
1: Indeed, they're probably both going down because Marquez is. There's no way Marquez is, is, is making the exit on that corner properly. So, again, Dovi was very smart in, in basically getting out of the way and realizing that yeah, Marquez is probably going to overshoot this, which he did. And again, Dovi goes on to take the win. But uh, yeah, I mean, an ambitious, an ambitious attempt from from Mister Marquez. Probably a little bit over ambitious, which is a rare thing to say about Mar- Marquez during a race condition, but. Uh, Yeah, even he can get it a little bit too hot on that one. But uh, yeah, you can't ever really blame a guy for going for the last corner dive bomb. We've seen it countless times in this sport. Yeah, we have.
0: Yeah, and as I say, if if it had worked, it would have been talked about as one of the great MotoGP overtakes. Um, If Mark is the one there, because much like Rossi's move on Lorenzo in Barcelona all those years ago, that's not a corner I've ever seen anyone overtake at. (laughs) <laughs> in the Edmund. time that we've Edmund. watched Edmund. Models, like racing around there, that's not an overtaking spot and Matt Marquez just, tried especially, to make it one. Yeah,
1: especially given they made the effort to make that corner slower. Mm. Um, using these using the slower final corner in that last one as well. So it's a, it's, it's even harder to pass because it's, it's a heavier breaking zone than in the F one version. Yeah, so they've
0: tightened the exit of it, so there's a lot less exactly. room on the exit of it. Um my favourite part about that was the the nonchalant wave of the arm from Domitios over the way that past as if what the fuck do you think you're doing? Um, as he's trying to go past him, and it's like, yeah, take, the yeah, stay in second, you little shit, um, was essentially yeah. the attitude of Davizioso. But having said all of that, the uh, the interaction between the two of them afterwards um, on the slowing down lap, I, I cannot believe the uh, the numpties that we find on the internet who have um, tried to uh, over-analyse Mark Marquez's um, sort of interaction with Davizioso on the slowdown down where, where he's waving the flag at him, and that looked to me like a two riders who were sort of saying, like Marquez was basically trying to say so I could have had you um and he he didn't quite get him I can't I can't believe there have been some online who tried to uh, suggest that there was some sort of uh, malice in that from Mark Marquez there wasn't um no and and, and how great is it um it's not always the case in motorcycle sport as we know all too well in recent years in MotoGP to have a bit of friendly rivalry between two guys fighting at the front of a Grand Prix for a victory
1: yeah I I, I miss these days we don't get it very often um um, these days and whatnot it just it, we just don't get that sort of thing these days anymore yeah. so i'm, I'm, anything, I'm, I'm, I'm here like, for
0: a Marquez de championship battle
1: yes please yeah. um we've never had it before and therefore it's automatically intriguing to me so yeah a bit of friendly rivalry i'm glad that it was all it was all handled with with, with, with class maturity and a, a good sense of banter regarding the whole thing rather that than uh having valentino rossi bring some papers to the next round saying he's lap times were faster <laughs> um um, so, yeah, I, I will definitely settle for that over recent history of just bitterness and handbags. That was fun. And um, I'd like to see a, a few more of, uh, of, of those this season, because, again, we've seen the way this season's gone out where, again, often the Hondas and the Yamahas are so distinctively different that we don't get Dog fights between them go into the distance like we have. We still still haven't seen
0: a Marquez Vinales dog fight all year, which is, which is, I need this in my life. (laughs) We're all desperate to see, and we still haven't seen it. Maybe next weekend we'll we'll see it because it is a circuit next weekend, Silverstone, where both riders are notoriously very, very good around Silverstone, both Marquez and Vinales. So that might be the weekend we finally get it. Um, we shall see. Um, And we'll talk about Yamaha at greater length in a moment and discuss whether they are indeed still in the championship conversation. Um, Well, first of all, completing the podium, Danny Pedrosa in third, which um, emphasised two things. One, that Danny Pedrosa's sort of mid-season lull that he had around Aston Mugello times well and truly behind him. That's back-to-back, or that's two podiums out of three, should I say. In fact, it is back-to-back podiums because he's on the podium at Bruno um, for for Danny Pedrosa. So three in a row for him now. And it emphasizes that Honda really have found something because it wasn't just Mark Marquez just forcing it to fit. They were second and third, the two Repsol Hondas. And Danny Pedrosa, with a few laps to go, looked like he might have had a say for the win as well.
1: Absolutely. Pedrosa was right up there closing in towards the end and maybe if it races a couple of laps longer, he could have really got involved and challenge for the win on that one. But yeah, Pedrosa seems to find a bit of his mojo again. Maybe not quite the ultimate pace to get really stuck in and challenge for wins like he did in her but he's in, he's putting himself in the right positions and that's always a good sign that um, you're doing the right things. So yeah, w- with that, Pedrosa's put himself right back in the mix given the last two rounds where he's finished on top of both Yamahas who have been the other major contenders at the moment. So yeah, Pedrosa's doing the right things probably needs to start beating Marquez a little bit more because Marquez is just slowly starting to eke out a little gap right now but um again is doing the right things so you think he might just have one too many guys to beat in front of him but uh you've got to start somewhere
0: yeah you've got to start somewhere <laughs> um Lorenzo Lorenzo's trying to start his his renaissance somewhere as well and it looked like his post Bruno Grand Prix test on the Monday was really the start of something for him he looked like he'd Um, found something with that bike, found the confidence that he'd been searching for all year. And it has to be said, Dre, as good as his weekend was, front row of the grid and fourth position, having led for a lot of the race, the anticipated step forward from Jorge didn't quite happen.
1: Sigh. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, we saw, like if this was like a vin, the first half was vintage Lorenzo yeah, have, a, have a brilliant whole shot get out in front oh, try yeah, and yeah. after
0: a back. lap of that race where he's a second clear I'm watching yeah. that race thinking uh oh Jorge's back
1: uh oh <laughs> yeah well, I mean, I've almost missed this yeah. um, subtle Lorenzo dominance my favourite um, but no not quite again he faded in the second half of the race and again he finished almost a dozen seconds off his teammate at the nice. end so Again, like the, as you said, the way the Bruno test was talking, he said Lorenzo might have found half a second, which would have been a ridiculous amount of time to find. Um, but it turns out in race trim, Lorenzo still just isn't quite there yet. And again, like we we often go back and forth on the bittersweet nature of Lorenzo this season, where on one side we hope i think we all underestimated just how hard this 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 conversion was going to be but at the same time he has these flashes of brilliance which gives you just enough hope to think maybe he's gotten there and not quite um so again like we still we're still kind of waiting a little bit um just just to see that the, the the true lorenzo come out in in red rather than blue but uh the signs are getting there. This was a better weekend from Lorenzo than he's had for most of the season. So you've you got to take it where you can get it, I would say.
0: Yeah, fourth place in the grand scheme of things isn't a bad result for him. And I think Ducati, uh, they'll they allow for a bit of patience here, given that his teammate just happens to be uh, yeah doing the of work at the moment and actually might win them a World Championship amazingly this year. Um, it's not which, which isn't bad, just imagine that if Lorenzo's back in form next season with his teammate running number one on the bike um, that would be some story, wouldn't it, Ducati um, but anyway, that's looking a long way ahead 5th um, position then at the weekend 1st independent rider and 1st Yamaha rider um, and uh, Joan Zarco finishing 5th given what he's done this year, doesn't necessarily feel all that amazing, because he's had better rides than this, he's had better results than this but I think Dre, we need to make sure we don't get blasé about this and downplay this just because it's happening quite a lot this is another incredible joan Zarco performance we've seen
1: beat the beat both factory yamahas again he's, he's he's made a knack of this in bad situations where we see Zarco shine the brightest is often when the factory yamahas don't like again it goes to show you just maybe what yamaha missed out on with a championship level bike last season because that is last year's yamaha and once again johan zarko he's done this a handful of times now he's shown up the factory boys on the 2017 bike and yeah again we we have to be careful we don't get complacent about just how good these tech threes have been this year and like on 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 any other measure a rookie on a satellite bike in the top five would be absolutely insane the problem is that zarko has done this three or four times over now and it doesn't get any less incredible just because he's made a habit of it but uh yeah as said an- another somehansko and again like the fact he is in that top six in the championship and only a handful of points off real genuine title contention um speaks of just ha- what an incredible year the man is having
0: <laughs> yeah he's, hit, he's close to a century now points he's up to 99 points so he's I mean he's still he's 75 off the championship lead but he's within 50 of Rossi-Pedroza in 4th and 5th, and hes it's yeah, he's, he, he's not beyond the realms that he could, if um, Movistar Yamaha's fortunes continue to take a nose dive, that he could chase down the, the factory Yamaha riders in the championship, which would be an incredible achievement, uh, if he can mm-hmm. pull that one off. Because um, he's heading to uh, Silverstone next week, where he uh, made himself public enemy number one in the Moto2 race uh, last <coughs> yeah. year. Um, just ask uh, our absent co-host for that one. Um, mm-hmm. Now, the Movistar Yamaha's in 6th and 7th, Dre, and this this issue that they have that they've been trying to cure for a lot of this season where they just cannot seem to make that Michelin work over a race distance they this M1 appears to chew its rear tyre up um, and both mario Vinales and Valentino Rossi said that they didn't really have much rear tyre left for the second half of that race um, this is a real concern isn't it for Movistar Yamaha in that plain and simply 6th and 7th last weekend was all they had
1: yeah, it wasn't a technical problem. It wasn't a real sense of riding mistakes. I know Rossi had a had a minor one in this in the second half of the race, but again, I don't think it would have made too big a difference in the grand scheme they of lighted.
0: things. The Yamaha's would have only been the other way around. They'd still have been sixth and seventh.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, so again, I don't think it was a a real race-changing mistake from Valentino. Really, um, it just took him out of contention for the win a little bit sooner than he probably would have liked. But yeah, I mean it it's not a good sign where once again where Yamaha's tires have let them down. It's the probably the third time this season where they were not really it wasn't that the bike was slow, it was just they were uncompetitive again. This like this is all they had. This is the this is all that that Yamaha had to give and yeah, it, you're right. It is not a good sign where like on these freakish circuits where yamaha are not in favor like it's like if yamaha has a bad day it has a really bad day and this was another really bad day given that for for yamaha all three of their major title rivals finished one two and three um where it was themselves finished sixth and seventh and you know it's another flaky sort of race for maverick vignale so Looked like the the danger man this year and right now he's drifting off where Marquez was and Marquez is starting to come through and Dovi seems to be going with him. So yeah, as you say, a a disappointing weekend for Yamaha and and another weekend when they're going to leave the circuit with more questions than answers.
0: Mm. Yeah, they um, Valentino Rossi spoke after the race and said it was a difficult race for me, for Maverick, for all the team because we expected to be stronger. We did the maximum and we don't have any regrets about the setting or the tyre choice. What was really concerning if you're Yamaha is that they, of course, ran the harder rear tyre, and Ducati ran the soft and made that work. And Ducati and Yamaha shagged their rear tyres by half distance uh, in the Grand Prix. Uh, Rossi also said, After 12 laps, I had a big drop from the tyre, and the bike became very difficult to ride. I was slow. And what's worrying, I suppose, Dre, for that is that you could have easily taken those quotes and thought that he'd said that after Jerez or after Barcelona, but he was saying it for the third time uh, this year. Um, yeah. where, where Yamaha have had this problem, on, as you said, on quirky circuits with difficult uh, track conditions, be it low grip, be it um, a track that's been washed by rain, whatever it may be. Yamaha just don't seem to be able to make their bike work in those kind of conditions. And surely at the moment, Dre, as good as that bike is in the right window, it still probably is the best bike on the grid. Um, but when it falls out of that window, it's clearly third best behind the Ducati and behind the Honda. And that's surely going to put their entire championship at risk.
1: Yeah, like you say, like, I think part of what's made Yamaha the, the paddock-agreed number one bike in the field is its versatility. Where even on a bad day, they can challenge for wins if Honda and Ducati have bad weekends. If or anything they... now,
0: the most versatile bike is the Ducati.
1: Exactly, and that is a terrifying thought that... Yeah, you know, Ducati again, have won the races they were meant to win. They've had a couple of surprises this season, too, with Dovi being where he's been this year. Honda, have, by the looks of it, has genuinely made progress as the season's gone on. Bike is starting to fix some of the weaknesses they've shown in previous occasions, like Honda's lack of acceleration. And, again, on, they seem to really thrive in low-grip scenarios, like we saw with, with their 1-2 at Aref. Um And, again, their 2-3 at Catalunya. Um, where they finished way ahead of Yamaha. I think the Yamaha still has the overall potential to be the best bike in the field, but the the catch on that is that their operating window seems to be a lot smaller than it was in previous years, where their versatility is not what it was last year. So yeah, they still probably have the best all-rounder, but the window where they can flex their muscles in that all-round sort of space isn't what it was in 2016, where even on a bad day, they would still almost have a guaranteed top three finish. Now, if they have a bad day, they're finishing outside of the top five because Johan Zarco, Danilo Petrucci and riders of that and... That's what's happened on three or four occasions this season where nailed on the Yamaha wins or even Yamaha bad days, they're, they're, they're losing three or four more spots than they probably should be there in previous occasions. If that's happening, it's going to hurt their title campaign.
0: Yeah, there's a, a big test that either has taken place or is taking place between now and the British Grand Prix at Silverstone at Mizano for from where we start Yamaha. And that looks like it could be a key test um, in determining whether they will challenge for this championship in the remaining uh, seven races uh, of the season. Um, because they're trying to find a cure for this problem that basically leaves them with no tyre left for the second half of a race. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, Maverick Iniales said himself, um, you know, we're, we need to make a big step at this test. And Maverick said, we're trying very hard to find the right way, but I don't know what it is. They almost don't seem to know themselves at the moment um, how to get themselves out of this hole. And it's almost like they're sort of trying to throw as much mud as they can at the target and hoping that some of it finally sticks. Um, and, mm-hmm. look, hey, the way this season's gone, and the, the, the trend of Michelin taking different tyres to different races, which produce different kinds of results, there's no reason why Maverick Vinales won't go to Silverstone and smoke them all like he did last year. Because um, he did it on a Suzuki last year, let's not forget. But as, as we're both, I think, saying, we just don't seem to know. Yamaha are just as likely to go to a race weekend and finish 7th and 8th as they are to finish 1st and 2nd uh, at the moment. And that's not, uh, very much, not much of a foundation for a championship challenge. It's a foundation built on quicksand, really. Um, for Movistar Yamaha, so they have questions <laughs> to answer. Um, behind the Movistar Yamahas then came a pair of privateer Ducatis, Alvaro Bautista and Loris Baz. Um, Baz described that as one of his best races in the dry uh, in MotoGP. Uh, and the results would back that up. But, uh, Dre, we have to talk about the man in 10th um, and the KTM in 10th. Now, this time last week, we were speaking in glowing terms about a KTM rider in the top 10. This was Paul Spargro in mixed conditions although he did make a lot of his progress in the dry it has to be said um, and in fairness to Paul had he not got involved in a bit of a collision at turn one with Danilo Petrucci he may well have been up there himself um, but how on earth did Mika Kallio as a wild card the test rider for KTM pull that one off we saw him up in sort of 10th length at the start of the race and I was just waiting for that name to gradually tumble down the tower towards his natural position around the outside of the points and it never happened
1: thank god somebody gave ktm fans a reason to to celebrate for the weekend because they they had turned up in force (laughs) for this one i thought max verstappen was racing this weekend seeing the amount of orange in the stands but uh they've got their own stand at
0: silverstone too by the way next weekend there's going to be a stand at silverstone cake in orange for ktm too
1: Ooh, spicy um yeah as you say like again ktm's been really really good all, all, all weekend and Again, like they had a lot of home fans in attendance, and again, very promising stuff, very promising times in KTM. And again, they were running twelve in in practice sessions, and we've all praised just seemingly just how fast that bike is coming together, like way faster than what Suzuki was when they came back, and the progress they've made has been astonishing, quite frankly. But Calio to stick that in the top ten on on merit with no real major retirements no. from. Guys, we'd expected that in the top ten of the field, in front of him, that's a stunning result. And again, like all of a sudden, Calio has come in, and that is the best KTM has performed this year, um, in terms of a race result. And um, okay, we know that Callio has obviously done a lot of laps on the circuit. He was there to test that bike in its early development stages. So, uh, like no one's going to know the scenario of the track better than Callio does, but. To go out there in race trim and beat his teammate Bradley Smith by what was it, 17 seconds? I think it was in the end. Um, yeah, that's Bradley a, Smith as, was at 18th. That is one of the rides of the year from Mika right there. Incredibly impressive stuff, indeed.
0: Yeah, and there, there is a lot of talk that uh, Dorna want him back on the grid. You can understand why, given that there's a finished Grand Prix right around the corner. Um, oh, yeah. But, um, but yeah, there's uh, obviously, there are rides still up for grabs in the most GP paddock, most notably out um, of And we've seen Dorna in the past subsidise teams to put certain riders in their, in their lineups. Johnny Hernandez has received that support. Loris um, Baz received that support to get a Frenchman back on the grid, pre Zarko, obviously. Um, you do wonder whether Dorna might foot the bill for a, a Mika Kalio ride at, at one of those teams, if not for next year, certainly for 2019 when we go to Finland um, for the first Finnish Grand Prix of this century. Um, but yeah, an astonishing result Mika Kallio was within 20 seconds of the race winner um, and KTM haven't been able to say that all year and if you look at the outright result and the hierarchy of the different bikes, the only bikes that beat the KTM of Kallio were Yamahas, Hondas and Ducatis Calio was ahead yeah. Calio was ahead of the Suzuki's of Yannone and Rins and ahead of the one um, Aprilia to finish of Alessia Spargaro um, you you know in a straight fight by 0.3 of a second. Um, and Alicia Spargo on the first day of the April was a further six seconds back down the road. KTM were legitimately fourth best team last weekend.
1: It's incredible. That is incredible that, they, again, they're making this sort of progress. Home yeah. right so round or
0: not, uh, that's impressive.
1: Yeah. Home round or not, again, this, that, that is very, very impressive indeed that they were fourth the fourth best team in the field. And, again, it says a lot about, you know, just how hard-working that KTM unit was where they were, again, again, again. they were never, um, it was never like manner where they were like two seconds off even the bottom ranked team. They were in the mix right from the start and they were still a couple of seconds off where they really needed to be to be a a, a top tier team. But again, the fact they finished, you know, less than a second the lap off the fastest bikes in the field around Austria. And again, within 20 seconds of the win, uh, and again, as you say, the legitimate fourth best bike in the field around that track. Um, very, very impressive stuff from, from KTM. And I hope it continues throughout the rest of the year because uh, there's a lot of people banking on KTM success. And um, I would love to see them up up the field because that is a very, very good team. A, a clearly a, a great set of guys. Making that trellis chassis work on that KTM, so yeah, again, I would love to see more because it's it, it, they're doing great things right now. Yeah,
0: this is a team where you can you can legitimately see the progress being made and the the curve of their of their results continues to point upwards uh, for KTM. Here's how the race <laughs> finished. Then so the winner for the third time this year by 0.176 of a second from Marc Marquez. Uh, Danny Pedrosa in third, then came Lorenzo fourth, having led early on. Zarco fifth, leading a trio of Yamahas, Vinales and Rossi sixth and seventh. Bautista and Baz on the Privateer Ducatis, 8th and 9th. Then came Callio in 10th. Yanone, last year's winner, 11th on the Suzuki, um, ahead of Scott Redding, 12th. More on him later in the show. Alasia Spargo 13th. First of the Aprilia's. Carol Abraham, 14th. And Cal Crutchlow, who had a dumpster fire of a race, finished 15th. Wrong tyre choice. Put paid to his hopes, and he got involved in a couple of incidents early in the race. Um, no points for Alex Rins, although he continues his progress on that Suzuki, nor for Hector Barbara, Bradley Smith, or Tito Rabat, uh, who finished in 19th position. Championship standings then, Mark Marquez's lead is up to 16 points. He has a new nearest challenger, though, it's Davizioso now into second, with Maverick Vinales down to third. 24 points off the championship lead, Maverick Vinales, given that he had over 30 points in his pocket over Mark Marquez. Four or five races ago. What an incredible turn up. That has been Valentino Rossi's nine points behind his teammate in fourth. And that's 33 off the lead. Danny Pedrosa is two points behind Rossi in fifth. Then comes Zarco sixth. Lorenzo seventh. He jumps ahead of Folger and Crutchlow. And Petrucci at the weekend. Folger crashed out. Petrucci having quite literally nearly jumped to the start. His bike almost jumped into the sky uh, as he tried to get Adjaccati off the line. Uh, he also failed to score. He has dropped to 10th in the championship Folger 77, Crosso 76, Petrucci 10th on 75. to Moto2 and a Moto2 race that again we're having a good run at the moment Dre, of decent Moto2 races which is a, a welcome change from last year don't jinx it don't, <laughs> no, don't jinx it although Silverstone last year was, was pretty decent as well it certainly had the controversy if nothing else um, with Lowe's and Zarco um, but what we got in Austria was a, a tense race with um, Franco Morbidelli just basically hanging on if nothing else he um, was under pressure for almost the entirety of that Grand Prix um, and Thomas Luti tries he might, just couldn't quite work his way through that that train of yes VDS calyxes, could he?
1: No, like the, he definitely had opportunities to get in there and and really rough him up, but again, I've never seen Thomas Luty that aggressive trying to win a race. He's normally a lot more disciplined than that, but you could see that Luty was trying everything to get past Alex Marquez, and he he eventually did, but then of course he got pegged back again. But um, the amount the amount of slipstreams into turn two and then again trying to, you know, outbreaking himself at the turn two hairpin and then trying again into turn three and trying to use more Bedetti to get a toe, it was incredibly intense tactical stuff from Luti in the first two thirds of that race, but uh, never quite came together for him on that one. Those Moto VDS bikes still just a little bit too strong on that one.
0: Yeah, just a little bit too strong. Um, in the end, uh, Franco Morbidelli then, the, the race winner. And this guy, not only did he show he can handle the pressure, but he's not just within a race, but within a season um, for Franco Morbidelli. Because we've seen a few occasions this season, and he still hasn't answered this question as to whether he can limit the damage on his bad days. Um, but in terms of the, the, the way his season has panned out, any time Franco Morbidelli has had any kind of dip, he's always responded. He has started with his three wins, then had his crash at Spain, responded the next race by winning. Um, he had a couple of poor races, Italy and Catalonia, and poor races by his standards of 4th and 5th, by the way. Um, he, yeah. he then fought back with two wins again. Then the disaster in the 6 lap sprint at Bruno strikes back straight again with another win. Um, one thing's for Sordre, Franco Morbidelli, when he does have his bad days, he tends to fight back straight away and rectify it.
1: He does. He has this knack of bouncing back from bad days. It seems to really motivate him going forward. and. Yeah, again, absolutely right. Um, Seven just wins very... out of eleven now. That that's incredible for Moto Two, given how unpredictable Moto Two is. And <laughs> Still given only twenty
0: six the... points ahead. Just, yeah, it's been a
1: weird season in Moto Two, yeah. where Thomas Lutie has been so consistent yeah. that Thomas Luty's now even... got
0: nine podiums from eleven starts
1: it's like he's not letting Morbidelli get away. It's like, okay, you can win seven out of 11, but if you have a bad day, I'm going to jump on you and break your ankle. Uh, it's one of those things where it's just, Luti has been so consistent and he's basically not given Morbidelli very much breathing room all season long. And that is despite the the DNF that he suffered in the Saxon ringer race, he was leading him when he crashed. Um, so yeah, Morbidelli has won seven out of 11, but he doesn't really have the championship lead to show for it. It's a very weird sort of um, scenario where, again, where two guys have be- just been so much better than everybody else in Modo 2 this season, where Morbidetti's been great, but not great enough to really hammer home this advantage over Thomas Lutti who in his own right has not given Morbidetti much room to you know, to really, you know, ha- hammer him in terms of the championship.
0: Yeah, because if we're playing top trumps and asking who's who's had the better podium ratio, it's Lutti this year. Lutis had nine podiums, Marbielli has had seven. Those seven podiums have all been wins, by the way. Um are yep. four other races where he hasn't been on the po- or he hasn't won the race, he hasn't even been on the rostrum. Um, which which kinda of, uh, explains where Lutti has continued to peg him back. Luti's record this season, but just running through his results, he's gone second, third, second, eighth, third, second, 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 retire, win, third. Um there's basically been one dip in that. Um the race that Dre mentioned where he crashed from the lead. Um, at the Saxon ring. Um, and at that rate, Luti is going to keep himself well in contention. Of course, it was at this stage last season where Luti really did come on strong after winning that controversial race at Silverstone. Um, and then as we headed into Asia, he then really began to chase down Juan Zarco in the second half of that season. Um, it will remain to be seen whether he can do that again. Uh, Alex Marquez then securing um, the first, would you believe, first 1-2 of the season um, for Mark VDS. Um, in this Moto2 World Championship. They've threatened a few of them, most notably at Jerez when they ran first and second and Franco crashed. But that is incredibly their first one-two of the season um, in the Moto2 class, just what Franco would have wanted um, with uh, Luti, his championship rival, the wrong side of that in third. Um, But to be fair, the three of them, Dre, were all a little fortunate that they weren't chased down by um, a Portuguese rider, cheered on by a wave of home KTM support. It looked at one stage as if that might carry up Miguel Oliveira, all the way to victory, he was chasing the three, the front three down, setting fastest laps after fastest laps as he did so, until unfortunately the uh, Red Bull ring bit him.
1: Yeah, just oh, an uh, an awful, awful, nasty-looking accident from uh, Miguel Oliveira, and he was setting fastest lap after fastest lap. Um, this was like, really Miguel Oliveira's like, coming home party. Where, again, he's, he's, he's been very, very good all season long, but he seems to be getting better by the round, and this was another round where he was comfortably... He, he had cleared Pessini in the fight for fourth, and then he was chasing down the leading pack, and he was, he was right on top of them, Until he had that very nasty high side at turn seven, and oh man, that's one of the fastest corners on the circuit. I think he's coming out there about 120 miles an hour, and it was an awful high side. Had to be he had he had to limp over to the ambulance on that one. Luckily, he was able to get on it under his own power, which is always a good sign. But um, a very nasty looking high side just when he was getting involved with the leading group of three. To challenge for the win, and I'd love to have seen that. I would have played that. Well, had just how far Miguel Oliveira would have gone to try and win that Grand Prix. But um, yeah, just um, overall. Um, a, sh- a shame for Miguel, because he's he's been in great form, and uh, it, it, a home podium would have been fantastic for the Austrian fans and for KTM in general. Um, but uh, yeah, probably a learning experience from Miguel more than anything else.
0: Yeah, it will have been. He uh, he ended up, at what could have been a victory, or certainly could have been a podium, and ended up with no points. Um, fourth in the end, behind that front trio, went to Francesco Bagnaia and uh, he's another rider, kind of like Zarco GP Dre where we we shouldn't become blase about what Banyaya is doing. It's easy to forget that this guy is also, like Zarco, a class rookie um, this year. And Banyaya is now fifth in the World Championship um, with, his, with his result of the weekend. He's now reached a century of points. He's up to 100 points for the season. His fourth top four result uh, of the season for a rider and a team, it has to be said, that are rookies in this class. Um, and uh, Francesco Banyaya again, much like Zarco, we, we, we shouldn't stop being impressed at what this kid is doing Given his relative lack of experience in this class,
1: stunning from Pecco, stunning again. Again, only a, a couple of seconds really off the off the leading pack. I know they split up quite a lot at the end because of uh, accidents and a little bit of bumping and barging from. With that late mistake
0: the, that he made, he very nearly got Luty at the end.
1: Yeah, like 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 Pecco was right there with Luty at the end in the fight for the podium, and again. We should not forget that this is a rookie, a 19-year-old rookie on a Moto2 bike, the most competitive, difficult class to walk into as a rookie, where if you're doing this well, you're probably going to be an alien one day. And, yeah, Peko is right up there doing the Lord's work and um, another stunning top-four finish there. And, again, he's he's really, really put himself maybe as a twenty-seven, maybe 2018 title contender if... Uh, if Morbidelli is moving up and whatnot, I mean, I think like like those two guys are going to be right up there. So uh, definitely want to keep an eye on for the future. But Pecco is doing a, doing a stunning job.
0: Yeah, we've we've got news on that team a little bit later on. They might be switching um, uh, constructors for next season. We'll uh, we'll bring you news on that a little bit later in the show. Also, shout out from Matteo Passini, who finished in fifth and um, discovered a happy knack of having gone a decade without a pole position. He went and got two in a row, two in a week um something about london buses and all of that um for, yeah. for tire passini um this one he did convert though having crashed from uh from the pole uh bruno he finished fifth on this occasion just behind um francesco bagnaya sixth went to, to kaki nakagami who uh since his uh announcement or not since the announcement but since the rumors started that he might well be heading most to gp's way next year he's gone a bit quiet but he uh finished 6th at the weekend with Brad Binder hot on his heels. And uh, given that he was the sole KTM left after Oliveira's crash, it was important that Binder stayed afloat, uh, which he did. Um, and this is, again, another rider, Dre, who um, doesn't necessarily have the uh, show-stopping results to show for it like uh, banyaya does, but this is now four, uh, five-point scores out of six since he's returned, and um, two seventh places in the last three races. This is a guy who really is on the upward curve
1: absolutely Binder really seems to be getting it together right now like um this is a a, 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 a guy that again you put it in a, in a vacuum maybe not the most impressive, I'm impressive. Not this
0: guy's fully fit either
1: no um, I mean again we we talk about Binder you've got to mention just the fact that he has barely been able to string three or four rounds together due to injury and again having a, a an awful arm breaker earlier in this season with a plate that didn't want to secure itself in place and Having to have you know extra surgery and whatnot in order to fix that. Um, so when you when, when you put all of that together, um, yeah, overall just a very very impressive ride indeed. Again from Binder, really really just doing some, doing some great stuff.
0: Yeah, and uh, and also another shout out for the man who finished just behind Brad Binder, fellow rookie Jorge Navarro, who we're going to talk about again a little bit later on when we get to the news. Um, he was in the points again in eighth. Um, he's had a couple of top six finishes this season, and Navarro has actually been in the points in nine of the 11 races uh, that we've had so far this season. Um, he's another kid who uh, quietly, in true Jorge Navarro's fashion, is uh, doing a very good job without really being noticed, uh, at the moment, G- much as he G- did G- in Moto3. Oh. Um, uh, one other incident of note to speak of um, in from this Moto2 race, and uh, excuse the rather backwards chronology of it. We're going to talk about the start of the race right at the end of our Moto2 roundup. Um, but Xavi uh, Vierge is a rider that we've uh, given a lot of praise to over the course of this season given his uh, uh, performances on that tech Three bike he's been doing the Lord's work for that team um, but unfortunately we have to uh, dish out a little bit of criticism for him on this occasion for uh, an impromptu game of 10-pin bowling up at turn one at the start
1: Strike! Um, yeah, you're absolutely right Xavi Vierge, um, again, is having a very, very good season but uh, this was a bit of a boneheaded move from xavi on that one again you just, there's no reason to be that i mean that is one of the worst turn ones on the calendar given how tight that turn one corner is you're almost bound to get at least a couple of guys running wide but there's no need. there's no reason to be so aggressive go- going in there and basically causing or at least being a major part of a seven or eight bike pile up at the first corner with many many riders having their races negatively affected by that but uh, yeah just not not very smart riding from xavi
0: no, we uh, we lost, uh, in that incident, we lost Fabio Quattararo, who'd qualified on the second row, um, another rookie who, um, he doesn't have the results to show for it, but he's uh, getting better and better as the season goes on. Quattararo um, was ruled out, Cortese was taken out, Baldassari was taken out, and Marini, so both forward riders were taken out at the start of the race. Um, Danny Kent never started it, he was one of those riders who, were, as we mentioned earlier on, was uh, taken out in the wet conditions on the Friday in that you know, ice rink of a circuit that we saw on the Friday. Alex Marquez took him out um, when he had his own accident. Um, But, yeah, Verke taking a a quartet of strong riders out of play uh, at the start of that race. It was an instant further back for Andrea Locatelli, who also took a few riders out, but they all continued. But, yeah, again, it was a bit of a silly start to that Grand Prix. Um, In the Moto2 race, here's, though, how it finished. Morbidelli, the winner, seventh time this season from Marquez in second. Luti third. Uh, Banyaya 4th and Pessini 5th, Takagi Okagami 6th ahead of Brad Binder and Jorge Navarro, Dominic Egata 1st of the suitors, Uh, of course he was the only Kiefer rider to start the race in ninth, Um, and Hafish Siren in 10th, Simone Corsi got 11th ahead of Nagashima and the Pons brothers Axel 13th and Edgar 14th, those are his first points of the year and Remy Gardner 15th for Tech 3 on the only one of their bikes to make the finish. Championship standings then. Morbidelli leads it by 26. As we mentioned, that's rather a small lead for someone who's won six more races than the man who's chasing him. Uh, Lucy in second. Marquez in third. 20 points clear of Oliveira now in fourth after Oliveira's DNF. banyaya is fifth on a century of points ahead of Pessini, who's sixth. Nakagami, seventh. Simone Corsi is eighth. Eger to ninth. And Luca Marini remains in the top ten despite failing to score after being taken out at the start of the Moto2 race last weekend. Uh, right moto three time um and moto three on this occasion didn't quite provide the uh brilliant pack racing that we often see or to be fair it did but it just didn't happen to be for the win it was for second reason for that joan mir curb stomped them dre uh
1: beat him down was right was ringing hard like Mo- joan mir winning um basically picking up where he left off a year ago where he he got his first moto three win there last season he's he doubled down on it this year and yeah, won. This guy's very- just
0: way too good for them.
1: Yeah, he's just too good. This, 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 this was just you know, in, an insane, an, an insane performance again from, um, from from, from Mir, Where again, another guy that's now put together seven out of eleven, um, so far this season. Um, you know, where she's just been so good, and again, like he got to the front of the field. He, again, it was scrappy at the start of the race um and you know whew. yeah you you, you weigh it up and he getting he gets to the front and the next, next thing you know is like well these guys aren't, aren't getting past him in the toe and as they they scrapped out and scrapped it out for a second that I was just screaming at the TV set you're letting him get away <laughs> yeah. uh, and and that's exactly what happened. Mir just, just breaks off at the front. He's got a couple of seconds in hand. And, uh, yeah, next thing you know, the race is effectively over at the front. And it's
0: a five to second again.
1: Um, yeah, Joanne Mir is just a little bit too good for these dudes
0: right now. Yeah, we uh, we saw it uh, on Saturday, for those that watched qualifying, and then were slightly confused as to why the grid order had changed on the Sunday. Joanne Mir had qualified second. Um, shout out to back-to-back poleman Gabriel Rodrigo, by the way. Um, who took the pole on Saturday. Um, Mir was second on the grid, but then was relegated to 10th because he'd exceeded track limits on his fastest lap and lost his best lap time. His second best lap was only the 10th fastest in qualifying, hence where he started. He got to the front of the race in six laps, so it didn't matter a jot um, that he'd had that penalty after qualifying. Um, And as Dre said, he just cleared off once he got into the lead. Um, I mean, this is a guy who... I mean, there's very little we can say about him that's already been said, but this is a guy who's heading right the way to the very top. I mean, we we saw him come into this class as part of a wave of riders, along with Bulliger, along with Canet, um, and we were waiting to see who would step out from the pack and really announce themselves as the rider to look out for in the future. And John Muir has announced himself as that guy, and we're already... Looking ahead a lot, but we can't help but look ahead. This guy's going to be on a Mark VDS Calyx in Moto Two next season, which I cannot wait to see.
1: Yeah, that, that's that's going to be very exciting. He's going to be right at the front of the field. Mark VDS has been so good this season. I mean, they've they think they've, they've won eight out of the eleven races so far this season, and you know, first and third in the championship right now. You're gonna you're gonna have Marquez leading the way next year, but with with Joan right behind him, there's a lot of potential in that team. And if, if Mir hits Moto2 the way he's hit Moto3, give it a season, he's going to be right up there in the front of him. He's, the guy's a very exciting talent right now. And he, he's curb stomping a very good Moto3 field right now.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Like I say, it's not like he's beating average riders either. And, and the reason I'm skipping ahead a little bit is because of the championship situation that we have in front of us now. I mean, Romano Fanati, who has done about as good a job as he can of keeping Mir in check. He's finished second to him for the last, God knows how many races. Uh, in Moto 3. Couldn't quite do that same job of limiting the damage this time. He had a poor weekend uh, in Austria from throwing a uh, very Fanati esque paddy after qualifying at Fabio Di Gian Antonio for what he considered to be a bit of blocking in qualifying. It wasn't. Di Gian Antonio was just on a hot lap in front of Fanati. Um, but he then finished uh, 13th in the race just so that happens that he was only uh, a couple of seconds off second position in the grand prix and unfortunately when you're in a 12 rat bike group and you're at the back of it you're going to finish quite low down the field unfortunately romano which is what happened to him on this occasion and as i say that's the reason i'm skipping forward because more it's more a case of when rather than if dre is going to win this championship now his lead in the championship it's up to 64 points
1: he is sixty-four points and like I know David Emmett was teasing the possibility of, you know, could Mir win it before the flyaway rounds. As if he Binder if he beats it. as Binder did, like if he if he takes twelve points around out of Finati between now and then and assuming can it finishes somewhere in, in you know somewhere off quite far off Mir as well. There is a chance Mir can wrap this thing up before the flyaways, which would be insane. He's got a six. I think it's a sixty-three point lead.
0: I think he has right now. Sixty-four over and he is eighty. Uh, let me do the maths. He is seventy-eight clear of Canet in third. Yeah,
1: again, that's that's uh, that's a lot. Um, no matter which way you slice it, that is a lot of points and. Again, the way it's going right now, can it seems to be, again, a little bit up and down. And Fanati, despite a good run of consistency recently, he's always one race away from a meltdown weekend. And Fanati chose the worst possible time to have one of those. And, yeah, like like Mir is going to be a super odds-on favourite now to win the title. Like He could easily win it with two or three rounds to spare, um, the way it's going right now. So, yeah, the Mir looking invincible at the moment <laughs>
0: yeah he does look invincible at the moment in, in Moto3 um, the uh, battle of the best of the rest went to Philip Ertl the uh, German who took second place which is a career best for him um, so congratulations to him um, the other guy on the podium though Dre uh, Jorge Martin who uh, has had a pretty turbulent month it has to be said given that he broke his ankle at the Saxon ring and it's fair to say that is still causing him a hell of a lot of discomfort not so much when he's not well, as much off the bike as when he's on it. He looks uh, crippled as he's walking around the paddock. The poor guy. Um, so for him to overcome all of that and still finish in third position is some going.
1: Very impressive indeed. Um, the Jorge Martin again. Again, he's he can barely walk right now, and he's hobbling over the bike and still performing on a very high level. Indeed, that was a that was a well calculated race for Martin. Tried to get the win. Unfortunately, was too caught up in the fights and, and let me get away. But Martin was in that leading group the entire way, deserved a good result, got a good result, and another. I think that's, I think that's the fifth time I think Martin's finished on the podium this season. Still waiting for that elusive first win, yeah. but so to, to to get on the podium in that condition, very impressive indeed.
0: Yeah, and boy did he enjoy it as well as he was uh, as he was almost almost broke his other leg celebrating as he came across the line um, when he. Uh... Technically, he did so off the racetrack, um, given that he was up against the pit wall on the wrong side of the white line, but the, uh, the stewards gave him a pass on that one, given that he wasn't exactly gaining anything uh, from mm-hmm. that. Um, the one rider who perhaps would have queried that and asked if he could uh, receive a penalty would be the man in fourth. And uh, Livio Loy, who um, gave Leopard um, their best day of the season. They've had plenty of good days with Joe Amir, but very rarely have they had both bikes up the front. And uh, yeah, Livio Loy, just a shame we only see this from him once or twice a season.
1: Yeah, like the, the, the ever elusive uh like maybe this'll be the year that Livio Loy puts it all together moment still hasn't quite happened yet, no. unfortunately. But uh yeah, Livio Loy is is good for one of those a season. And yeah. uh this time round, um yeah, a very impressive fourth place the way he fought through that that second pack to get into that leading group and very nearly snag a podium from Jorge Martin's one and a half legs um yeah another great performance of Olivia Loy it's just a shame we only get one well, again maybe one or two of these a year because again the talent has always been there it's just he's never able to put it together over a full season so, so yeah it's a nice surprise to have both pods up the front this time round.
0: yeah uh, it's we less we forget this is a grand prix winner um, in Livio Aloy, albeit perhaps the most freakish Grand Prix win any of us have ever seen. Um, at Indianapolis, when he changed to, when he started the race on slicks, and the entirety of the rest of the field didn't, and he won the wrong race by the best part of a minute um, back at India a couple of years ago. Um, and yeah, he hasn't quite been able to do that in a dry, save for the odd, the odd good race in Argentina a couple of years ago, and then again here. Um, maybe, just maybe... Uh, Livio Aloy will crack it eventually. Now, it's very, very rare on this show that we will uh, make a specific effort during a roundup of a race to talk about the rider who finished in ninth. Um, but on this occasion, we are going to, uh, and there's a very good reason for it. Um, because we are talking here about a 16 year old debutante, um, fresh from the CEV, the Junior World Championship, who had never seen the Red Bull Ring before and had never raced at this level of competition before who went out there, competed for second place, ran in second for a lot of the Grand Prix, with only Joan Mir up the road ahead of him, broke the lap record, finished in ninth. Um, many people, Dre, won't have heard of him, but I think everyone knows the name jean Massia now.
1: The That was an incredible, incredible first ever World Championship ride from for, from Massia. That was stunning. Uh, the fact he was running second at one point, we're just surprising everybody I what is it with Platinum Bay real estate <laughs> and suddenly churning out these ridiculous performances what do they what's in the water in that sea I want to know yeah it's it probably um, a bit too
0: quick for Darren Binder's liking, given that he wants his seat back when he's fit
1: yeah it's like like we we sure we sure Binder's coming back <laughs> um I just, oof, I, I'm, I'm not sure the way that's going because uh, yeah, that's going to be one to watch in the World Championship. Someone's going to snap him up next year regardless of what he does in the Junior Championship now because that was very yeah, very he's impressive.
0: fourth in the uh, Junior World Championship. Sign so, him! Yeah, <laughs> sign him up. Someone sign that guy up. What I loved though, Dre, about, about Masia during that race was the moment he got into second, and this is a kid in his first Grand Prix—he's only 16—so he's not exactly got experience. And he's telling other riders, he's doing that tap of the back, telling other riders to follow him and get him behind him. Oh, that was brilliant! Fearless, yeah. like the, the man is not intimidated
1: by any of these older yeah, guys. Get behind me, guys!
0: I've got this.
1: Yeah, it's like, hey, follow us. Me <laughs> getting away, and like nobody listened to him. Like the kid, the 16-year-old had the right idea. Um, yeah, again. Like, like again completely fearless like completely fearless stuff where again he's just got like a, the level of confidence on this 16 year old is unlike anything i've seen from a first ever grand prix ride that was again deeply impressive stuff again the tactical now is to get to the front of that pack and say listen follow me we can still get me um again and nobody really took his like it's like everyone else was like who is this young buck telling me what to do and he was beaten up for his troubles, but uh, that was a very brave performance from Messi. And uh, again, one to watch. You need it says a lot that he he's, he's still so young. That I remember last year in the academy that uh, Mark Marquez was basically ruffling the kid's hair when he was still a very very young teenager. And, and there he is now, making his his, his world championship debut and, and finishing in the top ten. Uh, a, a, an incredible performance from Messi, and a name to watch for the
0: future. Yeah, <laughs> another name to watch in the future. Uh, from the FIM CEV, uh, the Moto3 Junior World Championship. Messier, as I say, currently fourth uh, in that championship um, and surely heading for very, very good things um, in the future. Um, the Moto3 race result then at the weekend, uh, it looked like this. MIA the winner by a mile. Daylight was second. Philip Ertel next up in uh, second, three points back, uh, three seconds back, should I say. Martin in third. Um, as Dre mentioned, he's got a habit of getting on the podium this season. But the first time he's done it, on one leg. Uh, Livio Aloy in fourth. Aaron Canet fifth. Um, February DJ Antonio in sixth. Ahead of the poleman, Rodrigo. Adam Norrod in the Malaysian, up in eighth. Uh, Jao the aforementioned, in ninth. Uh, which, if you hadn't watched that race at all and just saw the result, you'd have still been impressed by Jao Macia on debut in ninth, but it could have been so much more. Um, he beat the likes of an at in tenth, Buliger, eleventh. His teammate for the weekend, Ramirez, who we've been speaking so glowingly about this season, Masia beat him too, he was twelfth. Uh, then came Fanati in 13th. Guevara, who started second on the grid, 14th. And Kato Toba the Japanese, completed the points in 15th. Uh, Mia's championship lead, as we mentioned a moment ago, is up to 64 points now over Fanati. Fanati is 14 ahead of Canet in third. Uh, Joaquin Martin is fourth on 105 points. That's 110 off the lead. Uh, Dijan Antonio fifth. John McPhee, who was unfortunately torpedoed by Bo Benchneider midway through that race, um, through no fault of his own. He's sixth in the championship on 93. He dropped two spots at the weekend. Marcos Ramirez is 7th on 92. Then came Andre Migno, who also crashed out of that second group. He was running second when he fell off. He's 8th. Guevara, ninth, And Ennea Bastianini is 10th in the Moto3 World Championship. Next round of all three classes is next weekend, the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. let's do the news and let's start with MotoGP news and the news that began to brew over the course of last weekend as we recorded last week's show and finally became official uh, this week. Uh, There's there's kind of two sides to this story and we'll start Dre with the uh, man who's come out on the right side of this. Uh, Scott Redding's been given a reprieve and that reprieve has come courtesy of Aprilia. Like. Is, is there anything more of a car
1: crash of a team season where they've driven out the guy they gave a two-year extension to only to replace him with the guy that's been universally panned this season as well for basically being nowhere near Danilo Petrucci all season long? Uh, may, maybe these two are made for each other. Maybe Maybe I'm looking at this in the wrong way, but... It's it's a puzzling move for me because I looked at Scott Redden and I went, I want the man's agent when I heard it when I heard this deal um be be rumoured. Um geez. It's 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 been sort of it's been all sorts of crazy and yeah, like, Reddin has been given a last-minute reprieve by the looks of it by Aprilia, and I can't help but sit there and feel that Sam Lowe's has been sold up the river on this one, because I really don't think Reddin is all that much better right now, and now he's going to have to walk into his third different team in four years, and on his third different manufacturer. I'm, I'm, st- I'm starting to sit here and wonder now as to, well, like, if he's not worked out on a Honda, he's not worked out on a Ducati, a team that I always thought he was going to work out on. So what's it going to take to get the best out of Reading? And is this, this is going to be year five for him coming up. And you're going to be thinking, well, if Reading's not put it together by now, is he ever going to put it together? And that's the feeling I get going in. It's like, well, you might as well still ride out Sam Lowe's at least for the second year of his contract and just see what you've got. But... It's just not working, really, on this one.
0: No, no, those are the exact words I used about Sam Lowe's when I tweeted about this at the time, sold up the river. Those are the exact words I used on on Twitter about it, and we'll come on to Sam Lowe's uh, in a moment. Um, But so far as Scott Redding is concerned, playing Devil's Advocate slightly, the the one justification or the one reason I could see why this move has happened is that Scott Redding perhaps had his best year in MotoGP with this team. Admittedly, it was his first year on the uh, CRT Honda, uh, the Open Honda, for the Grassini team back when they were on the Go and Fun Colors and he was beating Bautista um, on on the factory Mm. bike. So, admittedly, this team probably has a higher opinion of Scott Redding than any other team in that paddock. True. um, Given what he did for them, but that was four years ago now in in Moto Grand Prix. And Scott Redding has, if anything, regressed since then. Um, So, if anything... Grassini, I suppose, are guessing that he is still potentially the same rider they had back in 2013, uh, or 2014, excuse me, um, next year in 2018. And and I'm not so sure Scott Redding is, um, because you see, he's now tried two different manufacturers of bike, next year will be his third, and three different types of bike, if you include that production Honda as as a different type of bike to the Honda that he rode with Mark VDS, and he hasn't really threatened to become a frontline MotoGP rider on any of them, um, and I mean, if if this was the last chance saloon, and we thought this year was, then as you say, next year certainly is, because there's no other place for him to go. If it doesn't work on the Aprilia, then he's pretty much a busted flush in MotoGP on three different types of bike. Um, so, Scott Redding, and you know we, we, we all know, Sam Lowe's will tell you, if you don't believe us, how strong a teammate he's up against next year uh, in Alasia Spargaro. So, that will be no picnic for Scott Redding uh, in 2018 no, uh, with the Grassini aprilia team, who have not handled themselves particularly well, it has to be said, this year. Um, as Sam Lowe's will tell you, Sam Lowe's, who was told, Dre, a week prior to being given the bullet, that he was safe for 2018. Uh, a week's a long time in motorcycle <laughs> racing, clearly. <laughs>
1: Am I missing something here?
0: Like, does like
1: does Sam Lowes have nudes of the manager, or like is he <laughs> is he boned the daughter or something? Am I missing something? Like, I, I, th- I'm
0: I'm trying to wonder which side of the the team, if you like, is against Sam Lowes, whether it's a prettier or Grassini, because because Grassini ran Sam Lowes' moto too, um, yeah. and and I get I get the distinct impression that it, that Fausto Grassini and the Grassini side of this team really like Sam Lowes. Um, And I'm getting the impression that the Aprilia side of it and Romano Albusena do not rate Sam Lowe's at all and have therefore pushed this decision through to give him the flick. I agree. I
1: completely agree. I think the the Grassini guys were always leaning towards Sam Lowe's. And again, like, they, they knew what they were getting with Sam Lowe's and bringing him up to the MotoGP team. We knew he was inconsistent, but the potential and the speed was always there with Sam Lowe's. And he had probably more outright pace than anybody in Moto2 before he got that seat. And if anybody knew that, it would be Grissini. They knew the talent was always there. And yeah, it is a bit of a eyebrow raise. And I get... I, I, it's worth pointing out the apriia side of the of the garage are mental um i say that in 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 no with no like hesitation they are mental they expected this team despite to be winning races on a fundamentally flawed bike and they expected uh,
0: sam lowes to be competitive despite running a far inferior set of equipment to his teammates
1: yeah, and Alicia Spagaro, while very good, that bike has not set the world on fire by any measure this season. So yeah, you're absolutely right when when you say, yeah, This this the Prilia have probably gone into this with unrealistic expectations right from the start and have actually intentionally compromised their second rider by deliberately making him run an inferior bike. So how on earth can they be surprised when Sam Lowe's doesn't perform as well as Elisa Spagare, who is a far more experienced rider and has always had a reputation of bringing up bad bikes into play? He's always had that knack of, of being that sort of rider where he's very good in being a, a, he's a... He's a fantastic teammate. By any measure, he is a fantastic teammate. And yeah, like I, I think Sam Lowe's was almost destined to fail here, and he was putting up... Pardon me, Um, a a negative situation right from the start. And yeah, I I genuinely feel sorry for Sam Lowe's. And Rebecca James, if you listen, I've genuinely become a fan of sam because of how well he's handled this He is a true professional and he deserves a lot of credit for the way he's handled himself in a shitbox box of a team when it comes to organization so uh, props to sam and I, I do wish him the very best and i hope that mark vds gives him a lifeline because he deserves one for the way he's been treated
0: yeah yeah and it's Yeah, it's interesting because I I made this comparison a few weeks ago when we were speaking after the German Grand Prix about how well the Tech 3 riders were doing. And I I used the comparison of Bradley Smith at Monster Yamaha Tech 3 in 2013 when he was comprehensively beaten by Cal Crutchlow um, on that bike. But the team team invested in him. Uh, The team said to Bradley Smith at the start of 2013... You learn that bike, we're not going to give you the same bike as Cal, we're going to give him the the best equipment because he's the better rider and the more experienced rider and he can get podiums for us, and we're going to give you, you can learn the bike, and by the end of the year we will give you stronger equipment, and once you've learned the ropes and once you've learned Mods GP, um, you'll get there, and Bradley Smith didn't pull up too many trees in his debut season, but the team were behind him, the team backed him, and the team were invested in him and had a two-year plan with him. And lo and behold, come 2015, Brandy Smith was the finished article and was getting, you know, he finished second at Mazzano with that team and finished sixth in the world on that, on that bike with that team. And that's the reward you get when the team invests in the rider and the rider then repays that faith by getting results in, in the long run. And this team Absolutely. just appears to have run out of patience with Sam Lowe's very quickly, if it had any patience in the, uh, from the get-go with Sam um, and I think it's a terrible shame they, they, they were
1: thinking about moving him from like round five onwards they've had no patience with Lowe's from the
0: start again,
1: what were they expecting out of Sam Lowe's in the first place that's all I want to know were they, were they genuinely expecting podium finishes because if they were they're, they're delusional yeah, or were, they, were they
0: expecting him to to match Alasio Spargaro given that he's on a, a, an inferior bike um I, you know what more was he really going to do uh i saw one person on twitter i forget who it was it was i think it was just a fan basically who was sort of almost trying to justify a decision by saying well you know sam Lowe's has been a bit of a crasher i'm like well if, you, if they're sacking him because he's a crasher then why did they hire him he's always been a crasher um so yeah. so that you know that's not an excuse for, for sacking him either that he's he's fallen off too much because you know that pretty would have known that before they signed him that he's he's fast but a bit leery um so that's not a, a defense for them either he- you, you mean
1: the same sport that considers Cal Crutchlow an alien, yeah? Yeah,
0: exactly that one, yeah. And, uh, and you're absolutely right that you know, the way Sam Lowes has conducted himself has been nothing but, 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 but classy, and um, you know he can hold his head up high from this. Um, and, and he spoke after this incident, and you he, he can't help but feel a great deal of sympathy for Sam Lowes in this, um, <laughs> where he says there have been a lot of rumours over the last few months So we're not talking weeks. We're talking months. Um, But all along, my personal feeling over the first half of the season has always been that I was out of the team. So he's always had this suspicion that he's going to get the flick. If I put myself in their shoes, how they were treating me, it wasn't how I treat someone I had invested in. But I can hold my head up high because I'm working hard and I'm improving every time I get on the bike. Of course, I'm sad about it. Because I want to be a GP and hopefully we can still do something and stay in the series. I love riding bikes more than anything in the world, but it's been difficult. But I woke up feeling so much more relaxed after being told. Um, so if anything, there's a bit of a weight off Sam Lowe's shoulders now that the rumor mill, the rumor churning can stop. Because he now, he now knows his fate. And yeah, as you say, he pretty much knew his fate from very early on uh, this season. Um, the question, I suppose, of course, as, as Dre briefly alluded to a moment ago, is what next for Sam Lowe's? Dre, you mentioned Mark VDS. Um, and there aren't many obvious contenders for that seat. So you've got to feel that Sam Lowe's has as good a shot as anyone of getting that ride, right?
1: Yeah, he's got a pretty good chance. I mean, the extra MotoGP experience will only help in the long run, but I, I would probably put it down between him and maybe Stefan Bridal, given his pretty disastrous year in, in in the Red Bull World Superbike team that maybe Bridal will get out my... too, apparently. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, Thomas Luti's in the mix, and like Luty's been very quick to pretty much quash. That'd be fun. Moradelli into... and
0: Luty as teammates in MotoGP next year.
1: Wouldn't that be interesting? But um, yeah, gosh, like Thomas Luty finally getting the MotoGP chance um, for after se- after eight years in Moto2 in the intermediate class in general. Um, that would wouldn't that be a story? But um, yeah, there doesn't seem to be a lot of obvious contenders for this right now, and yeah like again, that only increases Sam's chances. Um, I hope he gets it because he's the sort of guy that I think deserves a second chance and a team that's willing to actually invest in him and actually give a shit about his ability as opposed to a prettier that clearly have not from from day one in that team and you know Michael Bartholomew, you know is a good he's done a good job of bringing that Mark VDS team up especially with Jack Miller if they're willing to show the same level of patience to Sam Lowe's then maybe they'll be able to get the best out of him
0: yeah I think uh, Sam Lowe's is the kind of rider that if you if you invest in him and you show faith in him he'll reward you um so uh, so we'll wait and see he certainly deserves he hasn't I would say you almost have to discredit this first half of the season we've seen from Sam Lowe's in terms of, is he up to MotoGP? We still don't really know, Um, because I still don't think he's been given a fair shot at this, and I hope he's given a fair shot with someone else next year. I I really, really hope, for Sam Lowe's sake, that he isn't forever tarred with the brush of, you didn't deliver at Aprilia, therefore you're not MotoGP material. I think that would be vastly unfair uh, on Sam Lowe's. Um, Just to uh, round off the point of how well he's handled himself, and um, the... uh, the way he's conducted himself. He also spoke about his options for next year, because there aren't any obvious Moto2 spots for him to slot himself into. Um, Mark VDS's Moto2 team is locked up with uh, Alex Marquez and Joan Mia for next year. Um, the KTM team look likely to stick with Oliveira and Binder. Um, so there aren't many obvious spots. His old Gresini team in Moto2, have announced Jorge Navarro will stay with the team. So it's, it's difficult to see where he would go in Moto2 either. He has, though, said he doesn't intend to go to World Superbikes just yet. In his own words, he says, "I can't go to World Superbikes just yet because I'd need to go on a bike that can beat my brother Alex, and there aren't any many out there just yet." <laughs> uh, which any, <laughs> anyone with a anyone with a brother can totally understand those comments absolutely
1: yeah I, I take it from me as a guy that's got a 19 year old brother we fight over everything we are stupidly competitive the sibling rivalry never dies take it from me so, uh, <laughs> so
0: sam lowe's doesn't intend to uh, ride around in the most, in the world superbike movie field yet and be beaten by his brother alex just yet anyway <laughs> um, but watch this space in future years um one of the seat in most gp which remains open and i guess sam lowe's will have his intentions of trying to secure this one. Um, and that's the second seat of Evintia. Unfortunately, though, for uh, for Sam Lowe's and for several other riders with Design Stray on a MotoGP spot, this one doesn't look so much a chase for the Aventia seat as a bidding war.
1: Yeah, it seems to be that uh, Avintia is a team that's not got great assets. They're struggling for funds. And, uh, you know, the way they're going right now, they they probably need at least some kind of, you know, financial injection, so which they're, is they're why no, they're going
0: to get the Dawn or Loris Baz money.
1: No, and because then the, the, like like Laurie Spars was 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 a, a big help because obviously the, 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 like Dorna wanted a Frenchman in the class, and they're no longer getting one right now because obviously Johan Zarco has kind of made Bass's position kind of untenable in that team, unfortunately because Bass has been great. Bass has put up good results and good numbers this year for the Avanza team more so than Barbara, who's on a better bike than him. And like the unfortunate thing is with that is that. As a result, it's kind of jeopardised Baz because of a series of unfortunate events, so to speak. But uh, it's probably re- the reason why we've, we've basically now in a situation where it's looking like Xavier Simeon might get that that seat because of the funding he yeah, brings.
0: Into, as play our listeners, he genuinely did say Xavier Simeon.
1: This is a weird situation right now where like, no, basically Xavier, Z- but
0: he ain't MotoGP material.
1: No, no, he is not. One career Moto, oh, two wins. General, yeah. Unless you ask RGL, because as you may not know, Xavier Simeon is Belgian, and the Belgian TV channel RTL has apparently got a million euros yes. worth of sponsor money behind him to, to get him into MotoGP to try and probably, probably just to try and enhance the sports profile in Belgium as a country. Who'd probably are too busy glossing over their overrated football team, but like you know, Xavier Simeon right now is. Whew, he's, he's really up there uh, um, in terms of funding, which is why the, the big talk is it might be Tito Rabat and Xavier Simeon in the India team next year. The undisputed kings of bringing good sponsors to, to, to bikes and to stick around for a little while. Yeah, um, Yeah. so we'll have to wait and see how that, how that yeah. goes
0: along. <laughs> Get MotoGP to spar quick um yeah, oh, God, yeah. since uh, since safety doesn't matter anymore let's go to Spa as well um but yeah moto uh moto gp next season could well see uh, a belgian back on the grid uh, in the form of xavier simeon if uh, rtl have anything to say about it watch this space for uh, news on that as avintia look to sort out their rider lineup for next year it does look as if they are clearing the decks with both barbara and baz on the way out um Desperately feel sorry for Loris Baz if that's the case, and that's not a sentence you ever thought you'd heard me say on this show. Yeah, (laughs) Um, but uh, you think he's a great character to have on the
1: bike grid as well. That you know Baz is genuinely an entertaining, very rational sort of guy, a good head to have in the MotoGP paddock. And yeah, if if the Tom Sykes fan is saying that you know the sport will be worse off without Loris Baz in the top class, kind of says it all, really. Yeah, (laughs) yeah.
0: and yeah, let's not forget that he finished ninth last weekend on a two-year-old Ducati um in austria because okay. he's on the gp 15 and his teammate uh, hector Barber is on the 16 having done such good job on it last year um so H- hector barbara who's been comprehensively outscored by baz too this year baz has done a very very good job um moto two news and um, we're going to look ahead to next weekend's british grand prix uh, ever so briefly here uh, danny kent unfortunately won't be there we don't think given that he uh, injured himself or more to the point alex marquez injured him um with that crash in the wet in free practice on friday um We've got Danny Kent used to come in a moment, but we do have a Brit confirmed for the Moto Two class at Silverstone next weekend. Andre, amazingly, I didn't expect to be saying this a week ago. It's double BSB winner Jake Dixon.
1: Jake Dixon, the news, the British wildcard for Hire. Yeah. um Yeah, absolutely. That is a that is a bit of a surprise, and yeah, I, I think that's I think that's a great move and a great opportunity for Jake Dixon, who again you yeah, he performed outstandingly well at Donington when he was a World Superbike wildcard. So why not stick him on a 600cc Moto 302 bike and see how he gets on at Silverstone as a wildcard? I'm really looking forward to seeing how that turns out. Yeah, yeah, because he, of, he will
0: be the second Dynavolt rider alongside Sandro Cortese. Of course, Marcel Schrotter is still injured, having uh, um, royally pissed his team off by riding the Suzuka 8 hour um, and coming home injured. Um, he's still not fit. Danny Kent subbed for him. Um, at Austria and got hurt himself after Alex Marquez um, took him out in free practice. And uh, yeah, Jake Dixon has got the call-up. Yeah, that'll be one rider who will be taking it very steady at Cadwell this weekend. (laughs) He won't want to get injured at Cadwell this weekend, will he, Uh, in the BSP and miss out on his his MotoGP debut. It's an interesting conundrum for him, isn't it? Because Jake Dixon is racing for a showdown sport in British Superbikes, but equally, (coughs) he's potentially got a Grand Prix debut to look forward to next weekend.
1: Yeah, no, no big deal. Yeah. Um, Priorities and yeah,
0: all. Yeah, a, a lot, on,
1: a lot on the plate for Jake Dixon. But if uh, if if a, a, a Moto Two seat is at home, at a home round is 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 calling your name, I don't think you can really afford to ignore yeah. something like. That. So uh, yeah, more power to Jake. That should be really interesting. Yeah,
0: good luck to him next weekend uh, in the British Grand Prix in Moto Two. Um, talk about out the frying pan and into the fire. Um, we mentioned Danny Kent a moment ago. Um, he won't be at the British Grand Prix next weekend, but he will be next year, assuming there is a British Grand Prix, of course. Um, and this is this is an incredible story. Um, we mentioned Scott Redding earlier and um, his perhaps fortune to secure a, a motor gp ride. Danny Kent has secured a two-year contract with Speed Up, um, which um, that's a rider landing on his feet if ever I saw it, Dre.
1: Um,
0: I want I want Danny Kent's agent. Like, how
1: did he pull that one off? A two-year like, contract, like. They're clearly, like, like whatever Danny Kent's paying his agent, it's clearly not enough, um, because given Danny Kent's pretty damaging reputation moves of what he was going through in his breakup with Kiefer, he might have fallen up to get a speed-up factory seat for two years um, off the back of that, given that how underperforming he was at Kiefer in a team where Dominique Agata was getting top tens. Um, so... That was a very, like, I was an eyebrow. I was like, wow, did he, did he really just pull that one off? Um, Like, I was just sitting there in shock at that one. So, yeah, you know, props to Kent's agent. That's a, that's a hell of a Moto2 seat for Kent. And, like, this is the best chance he's had in Moto2 to really capitalize. Depends on where speed up are as a factory. Because we saw the frustrations that Sam Lowe's was, often had. I was just going to say
0: that. Danny Kent, who um, is last or best known at the moment in the Grand Prix paddock for falling out with his team. Um, and Sam Lowe mm-hmm. was uh, pretty vocal in how disappointed he often was with his team, the same team that Danny Kent has just signed for. Um, so uh, yeah, that's a, I don't know whether that's a marriage made in heaven or not. But yes, Danny Kent has been given a significant vote of confidence by by Speed Up for two years. Um, the second year, of course, which will include the switch to Triumph Engines uh, in Moto 2. Mm-hmm. So um, if Danny Kent can uh, spend the year getting to know tech, uh, Speed Up and go well with them and uh, everything goes well then he might be in a very good position with that team for 2019 because Dre we've seen with Sam Lowe's on board and indeed to a less extent with Simone Corsi on board in the last year or two that on its day in the right conditions that speed up can be a very potent weapon in Moto2
1: it can it's 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 had high level finishes on multiple occasions with Sam Lowe's in the saddle so yeah, you're absolutely right. In the right circumstances, that speed-up is a weapon. And uh, it, uh, like I said, there is no better chance for Danny Kent to prove himself than this one, especially if speed-up have a competitive chassis in 2018. And as you say, if speed-up really are going to honor those two um, those, those those two years on the contract, he'll, he'll, he'll get used to the team going into the Triumph era switch in 2019. So, yeah, I really look forward to seeing how this turns out because – yeah, it's a really big opportunity for 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 Danny going forward, and we'll have to wait and see how it plays out. Because uh, yeah, on paper he was not going to get anything near this sort of seat on 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 merit alone.
0: No, and it's. Uh... Yeah, he's, he's getting his fix of machinery. All he needs is a Tech 3 replacement ride later this year, and he's got the whole set, hasn't he? Um, or a well. KTM, because he's done a KTM Moto 3 already this year. We've seen him on a Kalex. We've seen him on a Suitor. Now we're going to see him on a Speed Up for two years uh, in, in Moto 2. Danny Kent, Mr. Versatile, it seems, in uh, in Moto 2 and 3 at the moment um, in Grand Prix. Um, more Moto 2 news. And Jorge Navarro, who we told you about earlier on, he is staying at Cassini for 2018. Um Team that have ran him this year in Moto Two, Andre, I think very briefly. I think this is a move that suits both parties, both Grassini and Navarro. Has had a very solid rookie season.
1: Yes, absolutely. again Navarro again was been again. You mentioned earlier, just a ridiculous point scoring rate. Grassini's not the team it was where you know with Simeon and Lowe's where they could challenge for wins. They don't think they're on that level anymore, but. Um, Navarro's done very solid work, not really put a foot wrong anywhere. And yeah, more than worthy of a second year. Again, maybe with, with some good names going up next year, like potentially more, more than he confirmed and probably Luti on the way up as well. Yeah, probably Nakagami on the second LCR if that's a true thing as well. Maybe Navarro can start thinking about podium finishes next year. So a good opportunity for Navarro to, to follow up on this year, which has been strong, maybe a little bit lacking in terms of sheer opportunity. But uh, yeah, definitely, again, another guide to, to look out for for 2018.
0: News as well, which suggests that Moto2 next year could genuinely become a real clash of the constructors as well. It's been a pretty much a calyx walkover. Um, in recent years and even this year even though they've faced more of a challenge um, Calix have still won every Grand Prix so far this year Um, we -hmm. may well have more KTMs on the grid though next year Dre because it seems that Sky VR46 attempted to make the switch
1: yeah they're talking in the press right now that uh, uh, the Sky VR46 team might switch to KTMs in Moto2 um, for next year um, which makes sense given their Moto 3 affiliation. Um, when well, with mixed results, mostly on the negative for them this year. But hey, maybe like it's it's weird. I, I get why they're doing it. I mean, I am not as convinced as you are on this one that KT is the right move. I think Banyaya has been so good on that bike this year as a yes. Kalex, He has been in the mix for rings. That hey, why why change a good thing? Um, especially with Luca Marini potentially coming in next year, by the sounds of it. Um, maybe not the best Canex team out there but still a very good one by the by, the way that Baniar has been riding this year um, KTM like I, I guess you're betting against yourself really with, with again KTM the only yards that you've had really has been Miguel Oliveira who again has been excellent this year but it, there's, there's pros and cons on both sides I don't think there's a bad call you can make here um, I just think that I don't think you really want to mess up Banyaya's development by potentially changing chassis a year into his very promising Moto2 career. Right?
0: Yeah, good shout. I mean, I think Banyaya's, Banyaya's going to be fine whatever happens with Keith. Yeah, I yeah. Mean, like, he's, he's heading to MotoGP in the future, whatever happens. I, think it, I, I do think it is worth the risk for them, if it, even if it is a risk, because let's not forget, and you know, we've talked about the likes of Zarco and... Um, Banyaya already in this show about how well they're doing as rookies. Let's not forget this KTM chassis is in year one as well and look how good it's going so how good is it, how, how good is it going to be in year two um, next year with, with a year's worth of development through actually competing and racing. That KTM could well be a match for CalEx next year um, and yeah vr 46 might well be looking at it thinking well if there are so many CalEx teams on the grid perhaps our best route to winning this championship is to go the alternative route and go KTM um mm. because the suitor shows no signs at the moment of becoming a race winning package albeit perhaps they're not in the best hands suitor at the moment are run by the Dynavolt team which of course has signed jamie Vierke for next season um and the kiefer team which runs egetter at the moment um no signs from them that they're going to challenge for race victories but we have seen those signs from ktm with a brand new bike in its first year so yeah i could i could see the the pros from it and yeah i think at the very i think at the very least They can expect to be as competitive as the current KTM team are this year, Um, and they're already doing a very, very good job. So um, interesting times for Sky VR46 in Moto2 where they look set to run KTMs next year with Banyaya and Luca Marini, half-brother, younger half-brother of the man whose name is on the door, essentially, at that team. Um, Moto3 news, and this also concerns KTM, um, because... Uh, They are jumping into bed with Aspar for next year. Aspar, who have been running as the factory, in inverted commas, Mahindra team uh, over the last couple of years. Because Mahindra are taking their ball and running to Formula E with it for next year. Um, Who can really blame them, let's be honest. Um, But KTM are stepping into the breach and uh, joining forces with that Aspar team. um, Which looks, Dre, to be signalling a bit of a reshuffle in, in Moto3, and as much as it looks as if Red Bull are going to withdraw their support for the ASP, uh, for the IO Moto3 team, if not the Moto2 team, that looks as if it's going to become a stronger link-up, which means that the IO team won't necessarily be the factory KTM squad next year, which leaves a vacancy that Aspar might be more than happy to fill.
1: Yeah, it's looking that way. I mean, If you're Red Bull, this seems like a pretty bizarre decision to me because this is like the first year where I was probably got it wrong in terms of, you know, talent acquisition and, you know, in terms of going for a ride where they think they can develop into someone who's a world champion or at world championship level. Niccolo Antonelli has had a pretty rough year by all accounts. But if you were going to have a KTM factory team, surely I would be as good a name as anybody to run it, given that he has gotten the best out of talents like Jack Miller, you know, like Miguel Oliveira, you know, like Brad Binder. That has just, just moved them on to great things already. He seems to be building a really solid foundation of rider quality over the last few years with guys now in all three classes um, that, that have come through him over the last few years. So, um, yeah, the way it's going right now, I'm not sure that's the right the, the right move from KTM. I, I'm not, are we sure that Aspar is going to have more resources and a, be, a better sense of talent management than the Red Bull guys are uh, with Io? I'm not convinced.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. I mean... As far as the I.O. situation is concerned, it looks uh, as if they are going, if you believe what you read in Speedweek, um, and if you do read it, you'll read it in German, um, they, they look set to be essentially doing to their Moto3 team what their Moto2 team was um, a couple of years ago, With well, and indeed last year, with Joan Zarco, where it effectively ran as I.O. Motorsport without Red Bull sponsorship. Um, and you know, it it appears that's going to be what we're going to see with Io in Moto3 next year it's going to be an Io team without the Red Bull backing and with only one rider as opposed to two Um, the likelihood at the moment is that that rider will be Darren Binder but we shall see um, because it appears that both Antonelli and Ben Schneider are going to be moving on from that team um, for next year to where we do not know at the moment Um, but yeah, as far as Aspar are concerned, they, they also have some pretty impressive pedigree uh, in the lower classes, of course, back in the 1-2-5 days, um, Aspar were the premier team in this class. They won a couple of 1-2-5 titles just before the end of that uh, class's history. They won the final one 5 title with Nico Tyrol. Um They were 1-2 and two in the championship a couple of years before that with Tyrol and Bradley Smith, uh, with Julian Simon, should I say, and Bradley Smith. Um, the only reason that the Aspar team didn't win the 2010 1-2-5 title was a little thing called Marc Marquez. Uh, who beat them to it? Uh, no problem. Small problem. Uh, besides that, Aspar would have won that one too uh, with Tyrol. Um, so, you know, this team has plenty of pedigree, and Jorge Martinez Aspar is also a pretty handy talent spotter uh, in the lower classes because he, uh, he plucked Francesco Bagnaia into his team um, for the last couple of years um, on that Mahindra, and boy, did that work out for him. Um, so, I think there's every reason why that team can just be just as successful in Moto 3 if they are going to be essentially KTM's factory in words, comma, effort efforts. of course there aren't any official factory teams in those classes um, but there are teams that tend to get a little bit more of the manpower in their garages than others um, and Aspar may well be with that team uh, for next year. We shall see more news on that um, in the coming weeks but we do know officially that Aspar will be running KTMs next year having switched from Mahindra. All right before we go let's look ahead to this weekend. Um, And let's start with the World Superbike Championship, which returns after its summer break. Uh, And by the time you hear this podcast, Race 1 will have just finished um, over at the Lausitz Ring. So um, let's um, try and not make ourselves sound too stupid here, Dre. And have a guess at what kind of race the listeners will have just seen um, at the Lausitz Ring. Um, Last year, Chaz Davies beat them by a country mile. um, But then again, Kawasaki hadn't tested there. They have this year. Will that change the picture at all?
1: Probably, because um, where have Kawasaki been weak this year? Not very many places at all, and th- this year has, has basically been the year that's somewhat proven that Kawasaki is now just a great all-rounder that can win any given track, any given day. In fact, I don't think... like
0: Has there been, has
1: there been a weekend
0: where Kawasaki's not won at least one Grand Prix? No, oh, no. Uh... Chaz has had a double somewhere. Was, did he double up at Imola? I think he did, didn't he, Chaz?
1: Yeah, um, he doubled up at Imola. I, yeah, I, I think that is the
0: only one where where they haven't. And and yeah, they were. Sykes and Ray were one and two today. Sykes quickest in both sessions. Hooray! Just me. Okay. Um, but yeah, Tom Sykes quickest in both sessions today. Johnny Ray second. Second session was uh, interrupted by a monsoon that fell. Um, over the Lausitz yeah. Ring, which uh, led to a one-hour delay uh, midway through Free Practice Two, um, <laughs> which uh, kind of uh, put the Kyle Busch and Paul Michael Vandermark, who ended up in uh, Superpole One as a result of it, um, having just been knocked out of that top ten um, before the rain fell. And, but yeah, it's looking very likely that we're going to get the uh, the usual three up the front of Sykes, Ray, and Davies. Um, Sykes, by the time you listen to this will have probably started from pole position and finished third Um, but we shall see Um, as the racing takes place this weekend this was of course the weekend last year where the championship looked to have been briefly blown wide open when Ray had that DNF in the first race before Tom Sykes handed it straight back in race two Um, so let's see how it plays out this year Um, at the uh, final motorsport events take place at the Lausitz ring Um, and if you believe what you read on Twitter not many riders on that grid are sad about that um no. the venue for this weekend's British Superbike round is much more popular than the World Superbike round. It's Cadwell Park for the uh the annual August round of the championship um over in Lincolnshire. Um chance for uh, Josh Brooks to show just how brave he is over the mountain uh, if nothing else. Um now rather than showing how big his cojones are, Josh Brooks has got to try and secure himself a showdown spot. Now um, the big story heading into this weekend from British Superbike standpoint is the news that we kind of predicted last week, Dre, um, that Luke Mossy will not be taking part, which leaves his showdown spot rather exposed heading into this weekend.
1: Precarious, I think is the word to describe that one. That's put Mossy in some real hot water going into the final weekend in the regular season at Silverstone in two weeks' time. But yeah, you're absolutely right. That's put, that's put Mossy in danger. And yeah, like guys like Brooks and like like for guys like Brooks, like Hickman, like O'Halloran, and, and like Christian hidden they're all going to be eyeing up that spot now as one that they can potentially take advantage of. The way the way it's been going, so yeah, absolutely, completely agreed. Um, it's going to be a, a a shaky one. Um, pardon the pun. Uh... Uh, that was accidental, I promise. Um, but um, yeah, it's gonna be a it's gonna be a shaky one for Mossy going into that one. Never have to sit on the sidelines, where especially given that a lot of guys in in the mix that uh, that we had and shaky again looking very comfortable out there, both already on the lap record pace in free practice one and two. So. We, uh, Mossy could not have had a worse time for an injury given just how competitive the showdown is
0: yeah 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 that's burning badly there's another pun um shaky burn quickest no. today um on 126.5 shaky burn you'll be not at all surprised to hear this already under lap record pace in free practice at Cadwell Park um the uh mm. the a circuit that I think everyone adores, even if it is uh, the ultimate old-school circuit uh, on the BSP calendar. That's certainly one circuit that you'd never put MotoGP bikes around, um, it has to be said. Um, Shaky Bird quickest this afternoon in free practice, two. Um, just three hundredths clear, though, of Moto2's Jake Dixon um, on the RAF Reserves, Kawasaki. Once again, by far the fastest of the ZX-10Rs. Peter Hickman, the local hero in third. This is his home round um, and the winner last time out. Christian Iden fourth. Um, he's another rider, of course, with showdown aspirations. Josh Brooks was fifth ahead of James Ellison. Um, Leon Haslam, seventh. So that was the first and the only JT speak Kawasaki seventh fastest ahead of Michael Laverty, John Hopkins, and Jason O'Halloran. Um, and what's interesting there is that James Ellison, uh, who's um, kind of on the fringes, if uh, we're being kind to him, um, was still speaking um, in the official McCam's Yamaha press release in showdown terms, talking about, oh, we need a good round this weekend to... Uh, increase our showdown prospects. Um, I think that ship has probably sailed on him, hasn't it, Dre? I think James Ellison, surely only a double gives him any chance.
1: Even a double, I think, wouldn't be enough at this point. I mean, like, Ellison is way, way behind where he needs to be right now. He's not in hidden spot where he's on the brink. He's, I think, a good 70 points now outside of where he needs to be right now. Five for a races good, to make that up. <laughs> five to play. I mean, Ellison would have... To- to get god probably five podium finishes in the last five to even have a chance so yeah the way it's going right now i, I think ellison is in la la land a little bit there if he genuinely thinks that this is going to be the one where he's still got a chance I, I think i think ellison needs to probably sit down and think about either the chase for the, the paperweight paper, yeah. or or for next season because um i don't think this is going to be Edison's year
0: no unfortunately not um, BSP then this weekend at Cadwell Park World Superbikes at the Lausitz Ring We'll be back next week to review the Superbike weekend that takes place this weekend and look ahead to next weekend's British Grand Prix uh, at Silverstone uh, across all three classes, MotoGP, Moto2 and Moto3 um, One last time before we go um, places you can find us Moto, uh, uh, Motorsport101 um, at Motorsport Underscore 101, should I say, on Twitter, on Facebook, it's Facebook.com forward slash Motorsport 101. Keep an eye on both of those for news of the rules for the Centennial Cut, which we'll cover once again in a moment. Uh, on YouTube, YouTube.com forward slash Motorsport 101, where you can find weekly show highlights. Um, our website is Motorsport101.net, and if you like us so much that you want to back us financially, you can do so on Patreon, Patreon.com forward slash Motorsport 101, where you can earn yourself early access to to both Bike Live and to Motorsport 101 and if you back us on there this week you will get episode 100 of Motorsport 101 before anybody else Dre, just once again tell the listeners what they can expect for the centennial edition of Motorsport 101
1: the centennial cup the second international fantasy draft the sequel featuring Formula 1 IndyCar Formula 2 and the European Formula 3 round at the Nürburgring. Five of us on there. It's going to be fantastic. And, of course, some of the best and worst moments of, of my time in the 100 episodes we've had on the podcast. That alone is surely worth listening to. So, yeah, episode 100 next week. It's a big one. And, of course, you can get it exclusively on early access if you back us yes
0: uh, do that patreon.com forward slash motorsport 101 uh, for that we'll also return as i mentioned next week with episode 27 uh, of bike live here on motorsport 101 until then though from myself and from Montre harrison we look forward to your company next week for the centennial cup of motorsport 101 we look forward to your company then bye for now